Once again, you already know what it is and you already know where you have reached. This is the number one up-and-coming professional wrestling podcast anywhere in the world. This is the one-year anniversary episode of Hubbard Wrestling Weekly Podcast. And I'm your host, Sean Hubbard. What up, though? It is June 7, 2019, and we are about to do a retro review of WrestleMania 6 with my very special guest co-host. Before I introduce you to him, I got to make sure I reintroduce all my listeners to Hosprayer.com. When you want to revolutionize your business and make sure that it presents itself in the best possible light via web development and web platforming, the only place to go is Hosprayer.com. That's H-A-A-S-C-R-E-A.com. Hosprayer.com. Because we love tech. For everybody listening locally in the New York, Westchester area, make sure you check out Becky Bubbles Laundry Center for all your laundry needs. You don't want to have to worry about washing, folding, drying all your clothes by yourself. Drop them off. Use their special drop-off service. And if you do so and use the special code Hubbard Hammerlock, they will give you 10% off. That's right, 10% off your laundry drop-off service. In addition to that, if you call them up at 914-576-9115 and request their special delivery service, they will give you a discount just for mentioning the Hubbard Wrestling Weekly Podcast. So that is Becky Bubbles Laundry Center, 3 Huguenot Street, New Rochelle, New York, 10801. Tell them that Hubbard Wrestling Weekly sent you. You already know what it is, man. Once again, so happy to have you guys with us for this one-year anniversary episode of the Hubbard Wrestling Weekly Podcast. Everybody listening all over the world, we have listeners listening from every one of the 50 states in the United States of America, as well as internationally. I thank each and every one of you for listening, whether you're listening right here on HubbardWrestlingWeekly.com, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, the Daily Smart Body Slam.net, however you may be listening and wherever you may be listening. I salute you and I thank you. It's truly a blessing. I thank God for the opportunity to bring you the very best in professional wrestling, both independent and mainstream, as well as boxing and mixed martial arts. Please be aware that Hubbard Wrestling Weekly will be in the building, Madison Square Garden, June 14, 2019, for Bellator 222, on-site interviews. I'll be covering the weigh-in, I'll be covering the public workout, and I'll be covering Fight Night on June 14th. It's going to be a triple main event, legend versus legend, as well as two Bellator World Titles on the line in Madison Square Garden and Hubbard Wrestling Weekly will be in the building. But for tonight's episode, man, we're so excited to have a very special guest in the building, man, to talk about Retro Review, WrestleMania 6, April 1st, 1990 from the Toronto Sky Dome. He is the one and only Conrad Cushman of the Everything Pro Wrestling Podcast. We're going to jump right in and introduce that right along with this subject matter for the night. And I'm talking about WrestleMania 6. So we're going to jump right into this thing, Conrad. We welcome you to the show. And we want to ask you straight out the gate, with everything that was going on, man, in wrestling in 1990, over in WCW, Sting and Ric Flair were the man. But in WWE, it seemed as if whoever was the World Wrestling Federation champion was truly the man in the professional wrestling industry. And for the first time ever, it was going to be babyface versus babyface in the WrestleMania main event. And I'll tell you what, this rivalry got kicked off 
This rivalry got kicked off earlier in the year. It was Royal Rumble 1990 when this whole thing got started between the Warrior and Hulk Hogan, the Intercontinental Champion and the World Heavyweight Champion. Right off the bat, Conrad, do you remember this interaction between the Intercontinental Champ and the WWE Champ at Royal Rumble 1990, which led to WrestleMania VI? Yes. Um, I, I used to go back as a kid, and um, this is, this is going to show my age. I used to go to Blockbuster. <laughs> that's a video rental place for you youngsters out there. And uh, I used to go to Blockbuster every week. And, you know, as long as I was doing all right in school or whatever, my parents would let me get one video game, one movie, and I would always figure out a way to incorporate wrestling into one of my two choices. So I used to go through and I would get one of the old school DVDs from either WCW or WWF, and I would go back and watch these so I could learn about the history of everything. So I got the 1990 Royal Rumble, and I loved how every year when they used to book the Royal Rumbles, and I assume this is Pat Patterson's genius, mm -hmm. that they would tease something to see what the reaction would be. And if the people were into it, they'd give it to you. Well, they had the interaction between Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior. They're the only two in the ring, and the fans start going crazy for it. You can hear people standing up. You can hear people stomping their feet, and they're like, oh, I can't wait to see this. Let's go. And as soon as these two are crisscrossing off the ropes and they double clothesline each other, the tea stopped. Smart. Before the next entry could come out to uh, break up the, the energy that the fans wanted. And it was very smart of them to do that because they were like, do we have a match here? Yes, we do. And I just absolutely loved it. I loved their interaction on uh, Saturday night's main event. I believe that was the show. Yes. Or maybe it was was it main event or superstar? Sa Saturday night's main event. You're hitting the nail right on the head. There's too much wrestling in this old brain. <laughs> and um, where Hogan and Warrior were fighting off, who who was the tag team they were fighting? Perfect and the Genius. Thank you. I almost said the Twin Towers, but I forgot they weren't together at this time. So. Mr. Perfect and the Genius, they, you know, they're fighting them off, but you know how the heels keep coming at you, so you don't know when they're going to attack. They do this, like, scene where Mr. Perfect looks like he's going to go in, but he kind of goes off to the side. So when Warrior gets bumped, it's Hogan, and Warrior turns around and just clobbers him. And it's like, did he do it on purpose? And, you know, they got to drum it up like, I think Warrior did that on purpose to Hogan. And it starts the problems, and it keeps them going. And it reminds you a lot of what they did with uh, the Mega Powers. So I thought it was a really good build-up to this. Most definitely, most definitely. So the stage was set for the Ultimate Challenge. 67,678 people in the Sky Dome at the time of Sky Dome record. Uh, WWE was rolling and clicking all, all cylinders. The build-up was there. Everything was ready. And then, uh, you know, April 1st rolled around after the Saturday night main event that my colleague uh, Conrad just talked about. And after, you know, the, you know, Hogan saving the warrior from the big squash from the earthquake on on saturday's main event uh, about six weeks earlier warrior like i don't need your help and you know just continued to the crescendo continued to build and uh, it was time so april 1st rolls around we're at the sky dome uh the dark match of the evening was uh pretty paul roma going up against the brooklyn brawler where uh paul roma uh defeated the Brooklyn Brawler. This was a time in Paul Roma's career where he was kind of in a little bit of flux. And um, later on, he would team and join forces with Hercules to, to form a team that I thought was very underrated and should have gotten a bigger push, the power and glory. But 
Paul Roma is successful in the dark match against the Brooklyn Brawler. From there, Robert Goulet, a esteemed, uh, acclaimed singer, sings O Canada. I thought it was very well done. Uh, it was really a cool moment, um, cool way to start off the show. And then we were off to the races with Coco Beware versus Rick Martel. Tell the people, CK, about how you felt about the opening match of the evening. The, ro the model, Rick Martel against the Birdman, Coco Beware. Uh, these were two of the kind of undercard to mid-card stars here during this time. Um, the first thing I noticed was they brought back the entrance onto the ring carts. Yes. Which I, I really like those. It makes WrestleMania feel like a big deal. Oh, Conrad, I love the carts, man. I love them. And, and it's not because the guys can't walk down. I think it just adds to that um, this is grand. This is a big deal. These guys don't have to walk to the ring because they are WWF wrestlers. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was very cool how they did it. Uh, Coco Beware is someone who catches a lot of flack for his Hall of Fame induction. I feel like he is the measuring stick. Like, if someone's going to be put in, well, Coco Beware is in, so why not? And I feel bad for Coco because I think Coco Beware was a pretty decent wrestler. Coco Beware is not um, someone who couldn't work in the ring. And I give him credit because a lot of these guys during that time had to have a gimmick and... He had his bird that he brought around with him, Frankie. And Coco Beware absolutely did the right thing with the gimmick. And I always thought he was fun as a kid. I don't know if you felt the same way, but I always liked Coco Beware. Um, and one of my favorite heels during the time was Rick the Model Martel. Um, big fan of him and Tito Santana and Strike Force. Mm -hmm. uh, they were a great tag team. But when he became the model, I felt that he was better as a heel. He looked like a babyface, but this dude was a heel through and through. And I love that he had his cologne arrogance that he would spray in that oversized, like, canister that was so big that you were just like, dude, who needs something that big to carry around to spray it? But he used it in his matches and stuff. It worked. Rick the Model Martel, someone you would hate because he thinks he's such a pretty boy, but he could wrestle. He was a great wrestler. Um, absolutely love it. Um, did you have any thoughts on there or something you wanted to add to it? Well, I'm, I, I think, uh, look, one thing about me is that I'm a big fan. I was a big fan of Rick the Model Martel. I got to disagree with you on one thing. I couldn't stand Strike Force. Um, <laughs> I thought they were two pretty boys. Even as a young kid, I thought that they were two pretty boys. Um, I wasn't a believer in, in the whole, like, super goody two. Now, this is, sounds hypocritical, me saying I a, was a Hogan fan, because who was more goody two-shoes than Hogan? But Strike Force, they just smiled a lot, and they, you know, they came up with these cheap catchphrases that were, like, not even cool. They used to, I think what they used to say was, strike hard, strike fast, strike quick with Strike Force, or something like that. And I remember being, like, a five, six-year-old kid... Like, that is the corniest crap I've ever... And corny being a relative term, I probably didn't use that word, but I was like, that's corny. I don't I don't like that, <laughs> you know? So when the, when the model at the time, just Ricky Martel, turned on, um, turned on, um, oh my goodness, Tito Santana Tito at WrestleMania 5, I, I liked the evolution of the model. So um, it, it felt good to me, and I felt like he'd go a lot farther. I mean... History would show us he would never be a world champion. He was the AWA champion, but he that model character was really, really good. Yeah, there, nothing wrong with this match at all. I thought that they did um, a decent job for how they opened up. 
matches opened up differently too i felt back then uh you had to go out there and have someone who was going to get a strong reaction out of the people or someone you were pushing but um they started off with this match and they kind of wanted the card to build up to being better and better versus today where you start off with like one of your hottest matches and everything's a little bit different to me but rick the model martel picks up the win with the Boston Crab. I thought it was a pretty decent match. Um, I do letter grades when I review, so I wrote them down for all of my matches. I mm -hmm. gave it a C, so I thought it was a, a decent match. I'll give it a C as well, only because it was only a, a three-minute match. I think they could have gone longer. Um, but I think the story was told well. You had Coco, all due respect to Coco, but a mid-card guy going up against uh, Ricky Martel, who was uh, being pushed as a big-time heel. The model character was red-hot at the time. Martel going over makes sense as well, so I, I give it a C only because it was a short match, but I thought it was I thought it was well done. So we move forward into the card, and um, I was a little disappointed for one reason and one reason only that I felt like this match should have been later in the card, especially with both the IC and WWE titles being at the end of the night. We I would have loved to have seen, seen the tag team title a little later in the show, but nonetheless, um, and set, setting the stage a little bit for everybody out there listening. Um, Demolition were the longest reigning tag team champions in history up until the New Day. So we basically for the past umpteen years, Demolition was the longest reigning WWE tag team champions. They won the titles at WrestleMania 4 against the aforementioned mentioned uh, Strike Force, and they held the titles through WrestleMania 5, um, all the way up until an edition of uh, Saturday Night's main event in July of uh, 1989. Lost the titles to the Brain Busters, won them back from the Brain Busters. And the Brain Busters are very important to the story of this match. Why does that make any sense? Why are they important to this match, Sean? Well, I'll tell you why. The Brain Busters were the tag team that was supposed to take the, uh, you know, the Heenan family to a new level. And it was supposed to be where they were going to continue to thrive and do well. But co a combination of you know events led... Arn Anderson to re-sign with WCW, as well as Tully Blanchard getting in trouble. I believe uh, this is all, you know, this is what was documented, that he got in trouble for a drug problem, and, and the Brain Busters were no more, so they had to be written off television. So they broke up. And it was kind of like a last-ditch effort to kind of continue the demolition momentum against the Heenan family. So what they did was they took Andre, who we all know at this time in his career was limited in the ring, and they put him in a tag team with Haku, and they called themselves the Colossal Connection. And the Colossal Connection was essentially the replacement for the Brain Busters. And in a big surprise moment on, I believe it was WWE Superstars, the Colossal Connection defeated Demolition for the Tag Team Championship, which led to this massive rematch at WrestleMania VI. And I'll tell you, um, it was a really, really cool storyline. It was a really cool setup for the match. Demolition, arguably the most dominant tag team in history, going up against Andre the Giant, the most dominating force probably in the history of the business outside of Hogan, and Haku with Bobby the Brain Heen in his corner. CK, give us your assessment of the match. Give us your assessment also of the buildup, because I thought this match was very well set up. And uh, considering the limitations of Andre, I thought it was a well-done match as well. But I want to get your thoughts. Um, the setup of the match basically was that the Heenan family, I think you explained it very well with what happened with the Brain Busters, that whole situation probably screwed up WrestleMania plans. I don't know how deep 
that any of these shoot interviews have ever gotten into it, but the Colossal Connection became kind of a thrown-together team, and at the same time, you talk about the effort towards demolition, this was the last effort I felt towards Andre, and you could satisfy multiple people by having these guys in this position. What do I mean by that? Demolition were probably promised another tag title reign out of all of this, so they had to figure out a way to build Demolition up, and this time, they're baby faces. Mm -hmm. Granted, cool. Then you have heels on the other side, which is Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant at this time is not Andre the Giant of 87, even. Um, Andre's struggling to move out there. His um, battle with his disease is getting really bad, and it's looking like it's almost time for Andre to hang him up because he can barely move. Right. And on the other side of this hand, you have Haku. Haku is the one who gets kind of forgotten about in this whole situation. Um, Haku is one of my all-time, like, most underestimated wrestlers, and I absolutely love him. And when you look at Haku, Haku is someone who was doing great work, and he needed to be rewarded for what he has been doing because he's putting over a lot of people. He was mixing it up with the Hogans and Savages all the time to prove, like, hey, I can hang with these guys. Yes. So Haku's pushed to the back, so you're giving him a boost, too, by saying, listen, we're going to put the tag team titles on you with Andre. And this also gives Bobby Heenan something else to do, and he can help put them over because Andre needed someone to speak. And Bobby Heenan, if you guys don't know, was probably one of the most despised managers in all of the WWF still. Um, people just couldn't stand him. So I looked at this match. When you go back and watch it, you're going to see lots of brawling in this one. Um, you see Andre the Giant, like I said, he's in there. He's moving very slow. It's just something you'll have to get used to. It's sad to watch, but it's still Andre the Giant in there. And it didn't matter if he moved slow because fans were still into him just because of his sheer size. And this is something of the time that people just look at how big this guy is. You have to watch this. Anybody who's anybody knows who Andre the Giant is. You can show my picture, or you can show a picture, excuse me, of Andre the Giant to my mother, father. They all can name him. People on the street can name who Andre the Giant is, so it's still a big deal to have him in there. Um, the fans are very pro-Demolition. Demolition at this time was one of my favorite tag teams. I told Sean off-air a few days ago that uh, I used to bring Demolition to show and tell. They were one of my favorite tag yes. teams. Yes, yes. And it makes me sad to think about how Demolition is treated today. They, to me, are, if you had to list, like, top ten, top five greatest WWE tag teams of all time... Demolition's name should be on that list, and I feel because of their political stance with the company and everything else, they're kind of forgotten about. Demolition were those boys. I promise you, I'm telling you, they are a great tag team, um, especially just the Axe and Smash pairing. Yes, yes. Um, so anyway, the finish of the match is Haku mistimes a super kick, super kicking Andre the Giant into the ropes, and he does his classic, his arms get tied up in the ropes because... Andre was always good for that. And he's tied up. Demolition hit their demolition decapitation on Haku. One, two, three. Uh, I gave this a grade of a C plus because of how they put the drama into this. Um, during this time, WWF did an excellent job with their finishes sometimes. And I like that there was an accidental kick. Andre got tied in the rope. So it's not really Andre's fault for what happened here, um, despite what happens after the match. And Haku ends up eating the finisher. He's not going to kick out of that. Nobody is because finishers meant something back then. There you go. 
and it, after it's over, um, we we get a really decent match. I thought it earned the C plus rating. Uh, what about you? What did you think of it? I thought it, I thought it was a B plus. I thought it was a little higher than that for the same reasons you mentioned, but a little higher than that. I thought um, that the Andre getting caught in the ropes, the classic Andre move, but Andre getting caught in the ropes. And then the aftermath, I actually, I know we're only judging bell to bell, but I got to include what happened after the match as well. I thought that Andre going out as a face, because obviously hindsight being 2020, that would be kind of his swan song, um, even though he would do a couple of house shows after that. But um, I'll tell you what, like, kudos to WWE. They, they did things much better back then, you know, just decorating Andre a little bit more. He was already a world champion, even though it was a 22nd reign, but back in 1988 but you know to decorate him a little bit more with a tag team championship i thought that was really classy on wwe's part and then for him to go out like a face in the match but you know bell to bell probably a c but i'll give it a b plus because of all the happenstance and circumstances that surrounded it um a well done job obviously andre wasn't going to move that much big respect as you mentioned to haku for carrying the match for the team um, you know, he was a horse, man. He was a workhorse, and I have so much respect for him. Uh, Bobby Heenan was entertaining as usual, um, and Demolition did what Demolition does. They, they, they smash you, they, they demolish you, they, they beat you into submission, and uh, being outsized or outmanned by Andre didn't matter because at the end of the day, they were going to do what they do, which is demolish people, and I felt like WWE made the right decision and hitching their tag team wagon to Demolition. So, at WrestleMania 6, Demolition regains, for the third time, the WWE Tag Team Championship. Uh, we move forward into the night. Uh, and we're talking about a guy here now who was on the verge of his biggest push of his career. Um, he had had some recent interaction with Hulk Hogan on Wrestling Challenge, some recent interaction with The Ultimate Warrior, uh, on Saturday Night Main Event, on Superstars, and this is while Hogan and Warrior are preparing for each other at WrestleMania 6. So the earthquake is what I'm talking about, guys, was interjected, and the you know the antagonists for both men leading into their WrestleMania Main Event match. So the writing was on the wall, like it seemed like earthquake was being groomed to be the next big heel, and we would learn about six months later, five months later that that would be the case because he would be the guy who would put Hogan out of action on the Brother Love Show. But to keep it on task, Earthquake versus Hercules. I mentioned earlier Paul Roma defeated the Brooklyn Brawler in a dark match. Um, Paul Roma and Hercules would eventually join forces as a team called Power and Glory. Hercules, man, you know, they tried to... He was, he was a pretty good heel back in 86-87, became a face in 88. 8 through 89 and into 1990. At this point, he was pretty much jobbing to a lot of people. Um, you know, a lot of people going over on him. And you kind of sense going into the match that Earthquake was going to win uh, just because of the momentum that Earthquake had. He was undefeated. And uh, Hercules not doing much. Uh, it was nice that he was on the show. But, you know, it just seemed like Hercules was kind of, you know, just treading water in his career. And Earthquake um, did what Earthquake does, which is, you know, he did what he did and was victorious. But give us, CK, your assessment of Earthquake, not only during this match, but as I just mentioned, the momentum that seemed to be getting behind him from the office as 
we go into WrestleMania 6, and then we know what happened afterwards with his rivalry with Hogan. But going into WrestleMania 6, it seemed like the WWE machine was behind Earthquake. Am I right? 100% right. Um, Earthquake at this time was undefeated. So anytime someone goes on a little win streak like that, that used to mean big things for this guy. Big things are happening. And Earthquake was someone who was very agile for his size. Like, you wouldn't think that man could move in the ring or go, but he could wrestle. He was a big man. He had Jimmy Hart behind him. Um, I like how all the managers got a little bit of shine and their chance to go at Hogan. I feel like they were kind of like the legion of managers. And then each time they'd be like, all right, Bobby's guy's going to get a shot, and then Jimmy's guy's going to get a shot, and then Slick's guy's going to get a shot. They would just go through and have their guys try to take down Hogan. But Earthquake was someone who, he was getting the push, and he did a really good job with it. Um, I want to touch on Hercules, too, for a second. Please. Hercules, um, it's so funny. I will never forget how he became a babyface, which is so funny. Uh, Bobby Heenan tried to sell his contract to the Million Dollar Man, and he sold him basically as a slave. Like, the Million Dollar Man was bragging that he just bought his own personal slave. And then Hercules is out there thinking him and Bobby Heenan are doing an interview, and Bobby Heenan's getting some money, and then it's like, wait, I'm the slave? And then he ends up getting beat down with the briefcase and everything else. Um, just it, was, it was so funny and so disrespectful at the same time. Exactly. Like, WWF was wild back in the day, and I'm not even getting into some of the stuff said on commentary during this, because you could never say that stuff today. Never. Half of it. Never, never, never. Fans are way too smart for that. But Hercules, I always felt he had the look that Vince McMahon would want. So I don't know what he did. I don't know if it's ever been explained or you heard anything about it. But what did Hercules do to fall out of favor? Like, he has the look, the body, the strength. You would think Vince McMahon would love that. Herc's best days were behind him. You know, I hate to say that, but Herc's best days were behind him. Herc had a main event uh, match on Saturday night's main event against Hogan in 86 for the title. Um, Hercules was a winner at WrestleMania 3, the biggest show in history, uh, at that time against, um, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here, uh, Billy Jack Haynes, and, and Hercules was rolling, but, you know, when, when, in, in 1988 on the Brother Love Show, when Macho Man and Elizabeth shook his hand and said, hey, we see you changed your ways, you know, we want you to be part of our team at Survivor Series, as you mentioned, CK, the, the, the him refusing to be a slave, all that stuff. It, it, they were trying to put him in position, but just thinking back, hindsight being 2020, maybe he just didn't have it. Because I'll tell you, would would you believe Hercules as a world championship contender at that time? I wouldn't. And in 86, you know 87, 88, that was his best chance. So by 1990, I think the wheels had come off. I think you're right now that you put it that way. Um, it made me remember, like, Hercules isn't the greatest on the microphone. No, not at all. by Hogan and Savage, it's hard to give you a push. Right. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not, and that's no disrespect. Those guys no, are, I'm laughing right? because you're right. Yeah, I just didn't think about that. I'm like, man, Hogan, Savage, and I'm thinking of that entire Survivor Series team, and Hogan and Savage were the stars, man. You guys were behind them. And if you couldn't be better than them, you really couldn't say anything. And a lot of those people were just left out, unfortunately. But Earthquake ends up getting the win in this match. Uh, Earthquake actually gets his nose busted in this, which I think helped with his toughness a little bit. So if you see some blood on the mat, 
this is where it starts at this point in the match. Mm -hmm. Earthquake's finisher, I believe it's called the Aftershock. He ends up doing the stomp around, and he gets the one, two, three, does a little aftermatch beatdown on Hercules because he's a heel, and that's what he does. Um, I gave this a grade of a C, and it just brings back fond memories of playing, like, WrestleFest and stuff. A lot of the attires you see during this. Oh, and man, so Earthquake awesome. Earthquake being in it. So awesome, so awesome. And I want to give the fans a little bit of a tidbit of what we were talking about earlier about power and glory. Whenever there's a heel turn, that's not a surprise. Most heel turns are surprises. But there's sometimes where you can see a heel turn coming. And if you look at the very end of this match, Hercules does something that's very un-babyface-like. After the beatdown that you just made reference to by Earthquake, they're about to go to an interview. Actually, they're about to interview Brutus the Barber Beefcake for the next match on the card. The referee is going over to Hercules to try and help him up. And Hercules pushes the referee away. Now, again, hindsight being 2020, it's a very small idiosyncrasy that I noticed, but it's just a small tidbit, a small inclination, I should say, about where Hercules' head was at. That little shove, that little small thing, that little blip on the radar where he pushes the referee away that was trying to help him get to his feet. To me, that seems like it's frustration. It seems like I don't feel like being nice right now. That feels like don't touch me. I'm not in the mood. And about two, three months later, he turns heel. Now, I know that might be a little bit of a stretch, but but indulge me for a second on that one. Uh, no, I could definitely see it. Um... I, I now remember this as soon as you bring it up. Back then, those little small things did mean a heel turn. And I think wrestling fans of today forget so much about what that little stuff meant. Because now, the baby faces shove people because right. they want to look like the tough guy. Right. Like, I don't need any help. Versus back then, if you shoved a referee, like, why are you, why are you pushing someone who's defenseless? Exactly. The guy's just trying to help you. And it's just those little things like that that made a big deal for um, the heel turns and what they were eventually going to mean. And like you said, I actually think the Power and Glory tag team were a great team, too, just thinking about it now. They were an excellent team. I loved their finisher. Oh, my God. That powerplex was awesome. Yes, it was really good, and they were managed by Slick, and I love to see um, all the managers kind of have some cool guys with them. Yes. Something that I think wrestling desperately needs today a little bit, at least a little more of it, than just Paul Heyman managing Lesnar. I'd like to see more like managers have stables and guys who they're like, yeah, this is my crew right here, so don't mess with us. I could not. I, I, I always thought it was very interesting, but very different turn for uh, Hercules that began right here. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. I could not agree with you more. Hercules on the verge of a heel turn and Earthquake still on an undefeated track that would lead all roads to SummerSlam against Hogan and uh, we'll talk about that another day but next up on the list, next up on the card on this massive card of 14 on-air matches, 15 overall matches would be uh, Brutus the Barber Beefcake against uh, Mr. Perfect Kirk Henning with the genius, who we all know is Lanny Poffo, the brother of the late, great Macho Man Randy Savage. Also, you know, the late, great Mr. Perfect. Let's be clear about that. God rest his soul as well. Um, Brutus Beefcake. Oh, my goodness. I have such mixed feelings about this dude, Conrad. I... Brutus Beefcake was the most annoying yet fun 
infuriating yet awesome character I think in WWE history. Like, dude, I didn't know whether I liked him, didn't like. I, I used to think to myself, so his thing is he cuts people's hair. Like, I thought haircuts were a good thing, but like, I guess it's bad because he gets bad haircuts. But he calls himself the barber. I'm confused. But anyway, Mr. Perfect at the time, and more and more I think about it as a child, I think I was kind of like a bad kid as far as wrestling because I liked all the heels. Ex- except for Hogan, I pretty much was a heel guy because I loved Mr. Perfect. Oh, my God. I loved Mr. Perfect. Didn't like the genius, but I loved Mr. Perfect. And Mr. Perfect was undefeated on television, that is, because he had lost a lot of house shows to Hulk Hogan uh, when they had that little mini run that they had back in 89. Um, but he lost a lot of matches to Hogan on, off the air at house shows. But on TV, Mr. Perfect was undefeated. And as we know, he would end up becoming Intercontinental Champion a couple of months later after we, you know, learned what happened in the main event of WrestleMania Six with the Intercontinental belt. But Brutus Beefcake was coming into that match, and, man, um... We talked about Earthquake continuing his undefeated streak, but Conrad, talk about it, man. Mr. Perfect wouldn't be so fortunate. Yeah, this was very different. Um, Like you, I was always kind of a fan of the heels. So weird to say that. But Mr. Perfect was someone who was always so cool, and I I don't know if it was his attires or the boots that said Mr. P on them. (laughs) I don't know what it was, but there was just something about Mr. Perfect that was so freaking dope like i don't know you just how could you hate this guy he, he always did everything with like grace I, I don't know it's kind of like um when they make it look easy i use that with randy orton and aj styles a lot mr perfect falls into that same category yes anytime i watch him wrestle i'm like dude he makes this look like it's second nature to him like i can do drop kicks in my sleep what do you want man <laughs> boom 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 uh brutus the barber beefcake now, I have two feelings of thought on him. Actually, probably three, like, throughout my life. As a kid, okay, this guy's the barber. I never really saw him as an upper-card act, even though they tried to, like, force him into those spots, like, right. learning that he was Hogan's buddy. Right. Um, I remember him going through all these other terrible gimmicks, and I don't want to get too deep into it on your show, because I'm sure you're going to cover more of these, but him being the booty man oh my god zodiac and the disciple all those crazy gimmicks in wcw for brutus the barber beefcake you just i don't know you just shake your head at it and now to find out that this whole brutus the barber beefcake thing was a rib kind of well have you ever heard the story i have no no keep going you're hitting the nail right on the head i heard the same thing okay yeah with pat patterson um supposedly pat patterson had a friend with finger quotes, I'm saying that, uh-huh. who was a barber, and, you know, Pat was close with the person, and I think as a rib or a joke to Pat, they made Brutus the barber beefcake, and he was a flamboyant barber, he always came out, he still wore those, um, when I hear beefcake, I always think of kind of like male strippers, and that was kind of his gimmick before mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. the barber, and he's still wearing these same outfits and attire, so he was kind of always outlandish. He's one of those characters you can like him and you can hate him at the same time. I just felt kind of, eh, it's, it's the barber. Yeah. But, um, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? No, I, sa- I said, yeah, I'm agreeing with you. Oh, okay. And then, uh, the genius. Um, I've met Randy Savage's brother, um, a few times, and he's a really fun guy to talk to if you ever get the chance. He loves baseball, by the way. Nice. So you can always talk some baseball with Lanny Poffo. 
Um, the genius at this time, though, as a kid, I hated the genius. Maybe because I didn't feel like I was the smartest person in the world or I didn't like school, but I'm like, oh, God, somebody, somebody punched this guy out because I can't stand him. Uh, the genius is a big-time manager for this, though, for Mr. Perfect. He interferes in this match, dropping his um, scroll. It's basically a medical a metal clipboard. Right. And Mr. Perfect ends up using it in the match to where you think, oh, Perfect's going to win this. But Beefcake manages to kick out, survive in the match, and eventually, during the comeback, Mr. Perfect has Beefcake beat, it looks like, but he's being arrogant towards him, saying, get up, Beefcake. Come on, Beefcake, slapping him across the face while he's down. Beefcake eventually grabs his legs, slingshots him into the ring post, and Mr. Perfect takes the plunge, and one, two, three, there goes Mr. Perfect's undefeated streak. Yes. Um, I gave it a grade of a C because I felt like you could have gave these guys a little bit more time. I, I didn't think it was a bad match at all. I just thought it was okay, and I thought you could have did something more and something grander to end Mr. Perfect's streak than the way they had it go out here. But lots of fun, and I'll give it to you for the uh, aftermatch. Well, you know, I, I feel like, let me let me start with my grade, and I'm going to say it because I am, I'm being a fan right now and not a journalist. I gave it an F, and it's only because Mr. Perfect didn't win, so I'm being honest. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, so I don't care if it was five-star. It could have been Steamboat versus Warrior quality. Steamboat, excuse me, Steamboat versus uh, Macho Man quality, and I still would give it an F because... The wrong guy won. Mr. Perfect was awesome. But on a serious note, it, it was it was a C-quality match, I agree. But um, after the match is over, Brutus the Barber Beefcake is about to cut Mr. Perfect's hair. Uh, you know, the genius interjects, as he always does on Mr. Perfect's behalf. Mr. Perfect catches him, slaps a sleeper on him, and is able to give him a massive haircut. It's actually a continue, continued haircut from the Royal Rumble about two months earlier because at Royal Rumble... He got a haircut as well that Mr. Perfect kind of saved him from halfway through. But the genius got the job finished. Uh, you know, the, bur the barber gave him a pretty mean haircut at the Rumble, finished it off at WrestleMania, and the rest is history. But I want to talk to you a little bit, Conrad, and to the fans, a little bit more about Mr. Perfect and a little bit more about the WWE way of thinking. Mr. Perfect was awesome. The perfect look, the perfect... You know, the perfect uh, charisma, the perfect athleticism. He was Mr. Perfect in every way. But the problem with a name like Perfect is that you can't lose. So, to me, I mean, I I just felt, I mean, what he wasn't going to go 15 years in WWE or 20 years or however many years being undefeated. You knew he was going to lose. But to Brutus Beefcake at WrestleMania? Like, really? Like, I... To me, it was just, like, so uh, against what should have happened because I think Perfect should have really took his perfect record along with his perfect name and perfect everything to a title match. I'm talking about a world title match, and maybe then he loses because, to me, Perfect should have been an undefeated Intercontinental Champion all the way up until the time where if and when he would have challenged for a world title. So talk to us, indulge us for a second, Conrad, about your opinion of one of the greatest of all time, but just maybe some a small tweak in WWE thinking that would have had him be undefeated a little while longer. Um, Mr. Perfect is someone who I feel became 
another victim to circumstance of politics. Mm -hmm. I watch a lot of these shoot interviews, and I try to get multiple perspectives on things because I understand that it's just one guy's idea on anything when you listen to those kind of things. Right. When I went back and listened to some of the stuff about Mr. Perfect, um, I feel like he was a victim of what was going on with Brutus the Barber Beefcake Mm. at the time. And this all goes back and plays into it a little bit. Now, what do I mean by that? I think Brutus the Barber Beefcake was promised a push that we had heard about several times, even going back to the days of the Honky Tonk Man. Brutus the Barber Beefcake was supposed to be the Intercontinental Champion for a little bit at some point. Yes, he was. And just so you guys know, spoiler alert for future episodes, Brutus the Barber Beefcake never becomes Intercontinental Champion. Why is that? Because of injuries and the timing of him going out other people came in to take the reins on certain things and i won't even explain who it was or during those times but i feel brutus at this point was already promised that intercontinental title reign going back to 88 and i'm sure you know which event i'm talking about oh yeah so show up he wasn't there so brutus is wondering when am i getting my moment because i'm doing this stupid he didn't like this gimmick i'm doing this stupid barber gimmick i don't like it and what's my payday what am i getting out of all of this so eventually I think they said, well, we're going to have to sacrifice Mr. Perfect early or this guy's not going to be happy. He's not happy. Hogan's not happy. Oh, my goodness. So it, so it right. all rolled into one big effect because I think the plan was to keep Mr. Perfect undefeated until he got to that title match with Hulk Hogan. But it blossomed too early. The flowers were – the petals were off of it a little bit, and they were kind of just like – well, he's still Mr. Perfect. He's still a great wrestler. We could always just put him in there with somebody. And that's what he kind of became. He just became like the king of the mid card. And there were a lot of guys like that though during this time period who we could all we could always say like you could have put the title on this guy. Or you could have put him in the main event and it would have been fine. Just a sad I, uh, circumstance, I think, in my opinion. Most of, and so so well put, man. I mean, look, no disrespect to you know. Edward Leslie, the man, but but Brutus the Barber Beefcake, I mean, it, it's just, it was just poor, poorly executed, poorly done, and and I, I started off this, this segment talking about how he was annoying and awesome at the same time, because he really was entertaining, but it's just, you, you never believed him to be a world championship contender, and as you made mention of so accurately earlier, now he's like in main events with Hogan as his tag team partner, and he's knocking off the undefeated Mr. Perfect at WrestleMania. And it's like, man, like, how much more can you give this guy? Like, we, we don't believe him as a main event guy. So why is he in the main event? You know, it's crazy. Yeah, that that's... To me, I always felt like that's what they wanted, and they assumed that's what Hogan wanted, because in wrestling, when you go to the top, your friends usually rise up with you. True. True. And Hogan did look out for his friends, and that's cool and all, and I'm not going to... Look, if I was, you know, president of a company, would I look out for my people underneath me? Sure I would, but it's just, you know, you, you like to think that you have some kind of objectivity, and, you know, it is what it is, but, you know, we all know that this business, you know, as journalists, we study this business forward and backwards, and we know everything's not always on the up and up, so, you know, it's just kind of par for the course, but... For what it's worth, Brutus Beefcake defeats Mr. Perfect at WrestleMania, and uh, needless to say, I was not happy about it. <laughs> but it is what it is, man. So we move forward into the show. Uh, another rivalry that was uh, born at the Royal Rumble in 1990, where Roddy Piper 
eliminated Bad News Brown legally. Bad News Brown jumps on the apron after he's been eliminated and seemingly would not be able to eliminate Roddy Piper, but somehow throws him over the top rope or pulls him over the top rope by the hair and the referee allows it. Uh, so they eliminate each other at the Royal Rumble. Um, several promos and interactions on WWE television, Superstars Wrestling Challenge, things of that nature, prime time. Uh, you know, a lot of bad blood begins to build. And these guys face off at WrestleMania. Now, I'm going to tell you something, Conrad. I am going to throw this particular part to you because... Well, I throw a lot. Of, I throw a lot of stuff to you because you're, you're articulate and you're educated in the product. But for this particular reason, I'm gonna throw it to you for a selfish reason. It's be, and it's because I really don't know what I think about the situation. So you probably get the same answer from me. <laughs> Roddy Piper, I need you to explain what you think the reason is that Roddy Piper comes to the ring. Just, just take it. I, I just please, just take it. <laughs> So, before the match, uh, Mean Gene and Roddy Piper are doing a promo backstage, and Piper's turned to the side. And Piper looks like he's getting ready to talk until he turns to his other side. He says, right now you're looking at the hot rod. And then he turns to the other side, and he's painted all black, mm -hmm. dark black, on his arms, his face, everywhere, except for his teeth. Like, his lips are black. Um, and he says, or oh, you're talking to the hot Scott. And number one, Rowdy Piper gets a lot of credit for being like great at promos and everything else. I think the man was just a madman when he was talking <laughs> because he is rambling some stuff. And I'm like, what is he doing? And his breathing is something I always pay attention to in the promos. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. he's like, ah, and, I, da, da, da. and he just talks so fast that he's going through it. But it had me hooked. I noticed that I'm listening to his words by his breathing and the craziness while he's talking right thinking about this promo though he's talking about bad news brown bad news brown is an african-american if you guys don't know and bad news brown um is being talked about in this promo and piper's talking about certain things all of the features of bad news brown oh my god oh my god oh my god i'm not cutting you off i'm just interjecting oh my god because i'm like am i the only one who hears this stuff but please continue Yes, and I, I don't even know what to say about this. He starts talking about bug eyes, oh. um, his lips. He was talking about, uh, I, I actually, I think it was his lips and his mouth he kind of put into one, his ears, his nostrils. And you could, you could drum it up as maybe he was throwing some jabs, but at the same time, as someone who is um, a minority... I took it a different way too. Yes, like, and, and, and again, let, and let me interject. Everybody, I think most people have seen what we look like from our social media. I'm a black man as well, so it's like, yeah, I'm echoing everything you're saying. And, and I'm biracial, right? So right. It, you just feel kind of weird when people bring up stuff like that. It's just like, dude, why did you have to say like these certain stereotypes that you know are out there? And this goes into part of the reason why a lot of fans believe like black wrestlers are mistreated and et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to go too deep into it. No, I just felt that you didn't have to say some of that stuff to get heat on this match. This could have just been about two tough hombres getting ready to go in there and fight each other, and they had to hurl insults at each other. But maybe that was wrestling back then. I don't know how to feel about it because do I think 
Roddy Piper's a racist. No. But I don't understand the need for him to say that stuff. And you don't know who's booking it or who thought it was a good idea. Maybe Vince said, yeah, it's cool. I don't know, but I just felt some kind of way about it. Like, looking back at it now, I don't know. You know, um, this match, um, and if you look it up, you'll, you'll and I'm not talking about you, Conrad. I know you looked it up. I'm talking about to the fans. Uh, if you look it up, you'll... Um, You'll see there's a lot of negative reviews about this match, the the painted face and the commentary and the promo. Uh, it was it received a lot of criticism, not only in the wrestling world, but with WrestleMania being such a big event, some mainstream media as well, especially up in Canada. Canada, United States seems to be a little bit more liberal, but Canada up there, you know, they they a lot of people did rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And uh, man, I look, you know. As a black man, you know, I, I, I'm very proud of my heritage and where I come from. I may not have understood everything I was listening to and seeing as a, you know, seven, five, whatever year old child I was. But, you know, being in my 30s now, it's like, man, that was rough. I mean, and God rest his soul, I don't think Roddy Piper was a racist either. But it's like, that <laughs> that was rough. But, you know, it is what it is. So, um, the match. Yeah, let's get to the match, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, Bad News Brown one-on-one with Roddy Piper. The match starts off with uh, referee Danny Davis, who was supposed to be suspended for life plus 10 years back in 1987, but somehow he's back. Whatever. Um, Bad News Brown, Roddy Piper, Danny Davis is separating them, trying to get them off to a clean start. They're, you know, it's an all-out brawl. Uh, During the match, Roddy Piper pulls out what Jesse Ventura I think very accurately calls almost like a Michael Jackson glove, but I still don't understand the significance of that. It didn't necessarily seem like a foreign object. It just seemed like a mesh style glove that he put on his wrist or put on his hand to punch bad news in the face. Um, it ends in a double count out, but it's, or double D double something. It, it, it just, my grade for this, I'll start off with, my grade for this match, I know I joked around and said the Beefcake Perfect match was an F because Perfect lost. A serious D- minus for Bad News versus Roddy Piper. Hmm, that's, that's tough for that one. Um, I'm not going to say it was a D- minus for the fact of these guys went out there and they still wrestled a match that semi-told a story. Okay. I get what they were trying to do here. They were trying to get over the fact that they were both tough guys, which I get it. Bad News Brown needs to look credible. Bad News Brown is someone who never really got to enjoy the fruits of his labor, I feel. From any time he won something, there was always another guy in there to break a trophy or ruin a moment for him. Right. So Bad News never really got that moment. So this was kind of like his big WrestleMania match, I felt. And Piper never really got to be the champion at the time. He didn't have any of the big victories that he needed as well. So Piper is in here. He's painted half black. He kept doing this weird dance, too, in the beginning. That was like, the I don't know if it was supposed to be Michael Jackson-esque. That, that's why maybe he pulled out the glove. And maybe that was to lessen the... Vince probably watched it and maybe he said, hey, that's a little too racist, pal. Put on this glove and show people that you're still fun-loving and maybe they'll still see you as a baby face. Right, right. I don't know. Um, and the whole commentary getting lost on the, is the glove legal, illegal? He pulled something out of his trunks. The referees seem to have no concern that he pulled something out of his trunks. I get what they were trying to say. Maybe the glove was loaded, something happened with it. But here's the part that boggles my mind. So 
first it starts with bad news exposing the turnbuckle. He ends up getting whipped into it. Stupid heel move, so he ended up paying. While he's out on the floor, Roddy Piper and him both end up doing things that should have got them disqualified. Oh, yes. Uh, using different weapons. Um, I forgot. I think Piper had the chair and went to hit him, but then he hits the post, and it's like, hey, ref, DQ? No? Nothing? And the ref says that it's a double countout. They try to get to this screwy finish to protect both guys and maybe keep the feud going a little bit longer, but there was nothing about this that was worth keeping going longer. Um, I gave it a C-. The double countout finish really didn't help it at all, but I could easily see why you gave it a D- as well for this. Um, I thought it could have been better. could have been booked entirely differently, and I think it would have been better. Uh, to piggyback off your point, I want to go down a little bit of memory lane with Bad News Brown. WrestleMania 4 won the uh, won the Battle Royal, but was interrupted by Bret Hart. Uh, his, uh, As you mentioned, his trophy was smashed. WrestleMania 5, double DQ against Hacksaw Jim Duggan. As we just mentioned, uh, WrestleMania 6... Double countout against Roddy Piper. Survivor Series 88, he walked out on his team, got counted out. Survivor Series 89, he walked out on his team, got counted out. That's the Bad News Brown major pay-per-view history. Not fair. Seems a little dicey, if you ask me. to, To piggyback off of your point real quick, I think that they always wanted Bad News Brown to be a loner. That, that was my opinion. Like, he he was so bad that he didn't want to be with the bad guys, you know? Like, that that's how I always took it. Like, he couldn't work with anybody because he wanted to do it all by himself, and he's a bad dude. He doesn't need any help. I, I understand the premise, but you can be bad, and you can be a loner, and you can win, too. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. you know. He, he seemed like a squash match kind of guy, and then yeah. when it came to time for him to fight someone who had any star power... It was a it was a GG for Bad News Brown. Yeah, but then again, Bad News Brown did get an epic five star quality win at SummerSlam '88 against Ken Patera. Uh, obviously, sarcasm on my part. Okay, so <laughs> with that being said, let's move on. Brett the Hitman Hart and Jim Neidhart, uh, in my opinion, the greatest tag team in history. The Hart Foundation goes up against the Bolsheviks. Um, I can tell you something. Boris Zukov and Nikolai Volkov, they never really bothered me. I used to enjoy them singing the Russian National Anthem for entertainment purposes. But the Hart Foundation, I knew from early on that I really loved those guys. And, um, again, we mentioned this earlier, Conrad. We talked about how Earthquake was getting set up for his uh, SummerSlam run with Hogan. We noticed that Perfect was on the verge of greatness but kind of got derailed. But eventually he would win the Intercontinental title. Um, a lot of precursors for what we're, pro- we're going to uh, talk, talk about this show in the future. Um, Hubbard Wrestling Luke is definitely going to break down SummerSlam 90 because a lot of people talk negatively about that show, but I think it was a pretty historic show. But I say that to say this. When the Demolition Colossal Connection match was going on, uh, Ventura and Monsoon both mentioned that uh, the Hart Foundation had challenged the winner. We fast forward a couple matches in the night. The Hart Foundation, once again, they are being said to have already challenged now Demolition, who have won the Tag Team Championship. They come out. They jump the Bolsheviks from behind. I'll let you take, you know, the very brief rest of this match. 
Um, but I want to talk more about, after you break down how the Hart Foundation were victorious, I want us to discuss a little bit more about how it seemed like WrestleMania was almost a pre-show to SummerSlam, if that makes any sense. I know it's a stretch, but let's talk about the Hearts and the Bolsheviks right quick. I don't think it's as much of a stretch as you're saying. Okay. Um, when you go back and look at this, the Hart Foundation um, interrupted the Russian national anthem. Um, they did a, a little comedy scene right before, too. It was probably funny comedy for the time, maybe for people's parents. I have no idea who uh, the guy was doing all the little comedy sketches on the piano. <laughs> right. That was funny. Yeah, yeah. he was just doing like corny songs. And I'm like, this is stuff that maybe my dad or someone would have laughed at back in the day. I don't know who this dude is. Right. They go in. They do the Russian National Anthem. The Heart Foundation is not going for it. They're Canada's own team. So they come in there, and they make quick work of the Bolsheviks. They don't even get a chance to get those jackets off. All I saw was a heart attack, one, two, three, and I'm like, those are my boys right there. The Heart Foundation, the perfect combination of technical wrestling and power and speed. The Heart Foundation get a quick win. I gave this a grade of a dud. I really can't say anything, like, good or bad about it. It's just like, cool. That's what we got. That's what we're working with. Um, But... To touch on what you said about SummerSlam, right? I think that is one of the best SummerSlam tag team matches of all time um, that you're going to get there with actual tag teams in it. Yes. With the Hart Foundation and Demolition, as you said, for the setup. And um, I'll let you set it up and kick it to you because I kind of agree with what you said that WrestleMania was leading into SummerSlam. And here's why I think that. The SummerSlam wasn't fully established yet it was going on what was it a second or third year at that third, point third, it would be his third year in 90 yep wrestlemania is at six they're doubled that already wrestlemania is an established brand from three on as you said i think at this point once you get to SummerSlam, what's what separates the SummerSlams? they needed some matches and some oomph to add to them like well what's the big reason for watching these and you could run down the card and you're like okay that sounds like a big match and Demolition versus the Heart Foundation sounds like a very big match that you can't miss. And uh, I absolutely love that match and how it's put together. And I'm sure that you'll go through it another time. But absolutely love it. No doubt, man. I mean, again, it just, I mean, obviously the whole year almost from like January on built up to Hogan and Warrior. But it just seemed like throughout WrestleMania, it's like looking back again, hindsight being 2020. Okay, the Demolition win was meant to set up the Heart Foundation loss at SummerSlam. That was meant for them to lose titles to the Hearts. That's why the Hearts squashed the Bolsheviks. Uh, Earthquake ran through Hercules because he was on a collision course with Hogan. And it's like, man, like, this is... Oh, and by the way, to your point, I'm getting excited about this thing because it just popped into my head. To your point, Conrad, Brutus Beefcake was supposed to challenge Mr. Perfect. It's Well, we know 88, he messed up. But he was also supposed to challenge at SummerSlam 90. Mm-hmm. But Beefcake got hurt legitimately, parasailing accident. So that match was also a precursor for SummerSlam 1990 because Perfect was going to go on to win the Intercontinental Championship in the tournament. And Beefcake was going to have a victory over Perfect to say that he should be number one contender for the... Man, I, now that's the first that even popped into my brain. So that's another way that WrestleMania Six was a, a lead into some. Man, oh man, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. The biggest show of the year, also a lead into a pay per view four months later. 
And it all makes sense, too, like you said. I think that WrestleMania is established, like we said, and they had four big pay-per-views, so that's one. Two, Survivor Series. Survivor Series, to me, always felt like watching football on Thanksgiving. Yeah. You just kind of expect it. Like, you're like, listen, dude, show me some wrestling. Show me some uh, tag-up wrestling, and let's just make a card out of it. And I think fans today still want that. It just needs to be done right. And Survivor Series is done. Royal Rumble hasn't really been established yet, and I don't think it does until a couple more years down the line here. I mean, we know what you're going to get with the Royal Rumble, but it's not established as a show yet for, like, this is what the Royal Rumble is going forward. This is what it's going to be. I don't think you get that until, like, 91, 92. Agreed. But SummerSlam, they were trying to make this. This is the biggest show of the summer. This is the summer's WrestleMania. You have to be here for this. And it all lined up perfectly with their advertising. And I think the next thing that we're probably going to end up talking about is an ad that they're already running. And I think this is the first time they're starting to show the ad that far in advance. That's a, a fact. Show. That's a fact. That is a fact. You're 100 percent right. And to your point about um, to your point about the hearts once again, the buildup was there. To the point about earthquake, the buildup was there. And SummerSlam, the stage was being set for Philadelphia. You know, three four months later, and it's like you're like already, which I guess is good strategy. You know, promotion wise, you're already thinking about well, I gotta save my at that time 29.95. To make sure I'm ready for SummerSlam because it looks like the Hearts are going to face demolition for the tag team titles, which is you know it's it's great foreshadowing. So I I, I mean it, it's good stuff even though it's a little annoying because it's like I'm watching this pay per view. Can we enjoy this before you start selling the next one? <laughs> but um and also another point you made and then we'll move on. The Royal Rumble would not be a World Championship title Royal Rumble until '93. So literally. The Royal Rumble was didn't really mean anything until '93, so yeah, a few years away from the Royal Rumble meaning something. They knew WrestleMania was an established brand, so let's use this established brand to establish a new brand. So, um, good good analysis on your part. A little annoying because, like I said, let me enjoy this pay per view before you start talking about the next one. But they got to get that money, right? Always. That's what Vince is all about. That. Oh God, we know that almost to a detriment, but. We move forward into the show. A filler match, no question about that, but two really good guys, I think. Um, I've always been a big fan of Tito as it pertains to his in-ring capabilities, and I feel like the Barbarian was very underrated for being a high-flying big man, especially at this stage in his career. Uh, they did a storyline um, leading up to WrestleMania six, where the Road Warriors, I believe, were on their way in, the Legion of Doom. The Legion of Doom were on their way in, and I guess the brass, the powers that be, what have you, in WWE, were thinking about the powers of pain, and they were thinking about the Legion of Doom, and they were thinking about how similarly they look. The looks were very, very similar. So what they said was, we're going to break up the powers of pain. The Warlord's contract, this is fictitious, you know, kayfabe, whatever, but the the Warrior, the Warlord's contract was purchased by Slick, and the Barbarian's contract was purchased by Bobby Heenan from Slick. So basically, the the powers of pain were split up, Barbarian with Bobby Heenan, Warlord with, uh, excuse me, I believe it was um, Slick, and they were purchased from uh, Mr. Fuji, right? Yes. So, Barbarian's a single guy, so what are we going to do? We're going to put him in WrestleMania against Tito Santana. 
a man who I believe has a 1-8 record at WrestleMania. Tito was successful at WrestleMania 1. He lost at WrestleMania 2, 3, 4, 5. He would lose this match to Barbarian, which you're going to break down in a second. He lost at WrestleMania 7. He lost at WrestleMania 8. So he was 1-7 at WrestleMania. That's not good. But it is what it is. Barbarian, Santana, CK, talk to the people. Um, so let's get into this match here. The Tito Santana Barbarian match was something just to try and get the ball rolling, I think, with both of these guys. I feel at this point, Tito Santana was someone who was good to have for television, but he's not someone who's selling tickets anymore. He's not the former Intercontinental Champion um, that most people don't know that he was. Right, oh my god. But Tito's still a good hand, though, at the mm-hmm. time. Tito can still wrestle. He can still do his thing. It's just, I don't know. He's Tito Santana. He's a baby face. He's always someone that you can have tag up with the good guys. But he's there for maybe demographic purposes. I thought Tito Santana was always a good wrestler. I don't hate him. I'm, I'm just indifferent about him where he, like, was on the card. Barbarian, you broke that down beautifully, let me just say. Thank you. With the breakdown of the Warlord and his contracts and... I feel bad for these guys because I felt like they were going to be a big deal and rival demolition for a little bit until here come the Road Warriors and everybody gets screwed up from it. Demolition, um, the powers of pain, just tag teams went all over the place after. And if you weren't established already and something unique and different from them, you were done. It was like if the Rock and Roll Express came in, the Rockers would be done. Right. What is this? You can't just break us all up because these guys are coming in. So that's why people have always had that perceived perception of you're just a knockoff road warriors to a lot of these teams because as soon as they got them, they're like, all right, everybody get out. Get out of the way for them. This is going to be our new team. And I always felt bad for them for that. Um, This was a very basic match, though. If you've ever seen a Tito Santana or a Barbarian match, if you've ever watched Superstars or anything like that, you've seen this match a thousand times. Barbarian with Bobby Heenan, uh, flying forearm from Tito Santana, put um, Bobby the Brain Heenan figures out a way to get Barbarian's foot on the rope. Tito's getting mad. He's pointing at Heenan because baby faces are dumb and they get distracted by this stuff. <laughs> and uh, he ends up losing to Barbarian's flying clothesline. And big props to Barbarian's big boot. I always thought that was one of the most vicious looking things that he could do. But a flying clothesline off the top rope ends up defeating Tito Santana in this one. I gave this a grade of a C as well. Just a basic match, something that we've seen a thousand times. You know, CK, I couldn't agree with you more. I agree. Um, very typical ending to see a babyface be distracted by a manager, so you're right about that. But I'll tell you one thing that was not typical, and that was that clothesline off the top rope by the Barbarian onto Tito Santana. And I know all my fans listening right now on HubbardWrestlingWeekly.com, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, The Daily Smart, Bodyslam.net, Wherever you may be listening, however you may be listening, I appreciate you guys. And I know you're thinking to yourself, Sean, you are really overselling this clothesline. No, I am not. I challenge you with all the wonderful things to look back on at WrestleMania 6, April 1st, 1990. Hogan and Warrior itself, the tag titles changing hands, so many wonderful things to check out. But during your time watching the show, going back in time, go to the ending of Tito Santana versus the Barbarian and watch the Barbarian come off the top rope and literally almost take Tito Santana's head off 
with a perfect, and you heard what I said, a absolutely flawless clothesline off the top rope. To see that big man execute that move to perfection was unbelievable. Now, we know the Barbarian used to come off the top rope and do a flying headbutt when he was with the Warlord as part of the Powers of Pain. We've seen him do flying shoulder blocks and things like that. And he's done the flying clothesline, but never the way he executed it on Tito. And shout out to Tito Santana for selling it the way he did, the Hall of Famer, because that was a great sell job. But what an amazing finish to a match that was just another match, just another filler match on a WrestleMania 6 card, but one of the greatest clotheslines off the top rope I've ever seen. So with that being said, I want to take you back, back down memory lane in more of a general way before we get into our next match, Conrad, and to all my people listening, because back in the day, pay-per-views were done in halves. You'd have the first half of a pay-per-view, and they would do literally a five-minute intermission in the middle of the pay-per-view, and then they would come back for the second half of the show. So typically, what they would do is they would have one of the bigger matches of the night be the closing match of the first half of the show before they went to their five-minute intermission. And the way uh, WWE's powers that be put this particular card together the main event match, I'm using air quotes, but the main event match of the first half would be the mixed tag team match between Dusty Rhodes and Sapphire going up against Macho King Randy Savage and the Sensational Queen Sherry. And Miss Elizabeth, the lovely Miss Elizabeth, would make her return to ringside in this match after an extended absence from the ring. And she would not be in the Macho King's corner because, of course, Sensational Queen Sherry was with the Macho King. She would be in Dusty Rhodes and Sapphire's corner. But again, this was a time where they did pay-per-views in half. So this was the main event of the first half of WrestleMania before they went to that five-minute intermission. So with that being said, I want to toss it back to uh, Conrad and get your opinion, CK, of the match between the Macho King, Randy Savage... Sensational Queen Sherry going up against Dusty Rhodes and the Sweet Sapphire. And with a twist, the returning Miss Elizabeth, not in the corner of Savage, but instead in the corner of Dusty and Sapphire. Give us your take on this epic matchup. It was the first ever mixed tag in uh, WWE history. I know it's very commonplace and very typical now to have mixed tags, but this was the first one ever. WrestleMania 6. Talk about it. Oh, man, we got, number one, I think we had classic promos from both sides. I want to establish this first. Yes. These promos always meant a lot to me um, as a kid because this is what kind of got you hyped for the match and what led into it. Macho Man Randy Savage, I could still, like, if you had the camera on me right now and you could see me, I could do the Macho Man promos from a kid. Just give me the background and have Sherry standing next to me. My back is turned all muscled up. Yeah. You know Dusty Rhodes thinks he's going to do this and this to me. Yeah. Well, I tell you, Dusty, and Savage will just go on and you would love it. That's he, awesome. He goes around carrying his royal scepter. He was the macho king at this time. And Sensational Queen Sherry, who, if you guys are looking for a name for your new WrestleMania Battle Royal, I am taking this from someone else I heard say it, but the Sensational Inventational sounds great. And I think that's a name that you could use. So if anyone's on the creative team, feel free to borrow it. I will take credit later. Nice. Um, then we get Dusty Rhodes. I absolutely love Dusty as a kid. Uh, one of my favorite promos he ever did was about the 
uh, what was it, the Sick Cup or the Suck Cup? Mm-hmm. Um, if you've ever seen it, go on YouTube and type in uh, Suck Cup. I know it's got to be on there somewhere. Uh, and it's just those old cups with the caps on them with the straws. And Dusty is selling it like a million bucks. Dusty Rhodes can sell you a ketchup popsicle with white gloves on. The dude was great. And Sapphire, it, here's the weird thing. Sapphire was someone who was just so, I don't want to use this word in such a disrespectful way. She was homely. Like, she she was someone that you'd be like, oh, Sapphire looks like a sweet lady. Someone who you would want to hang out with. She could dance. And you're just like, oh, okay, that's cool. It just worked for Dusty's character. Um, so Dusty is bragging throughout these promos about having a crown jewel, no pun intended for these, uh, recent pay-per-view names in Saudi Arabia, but he talks about having a crown jewel and he comes out and he says the exact same thing to the people in the arena so they can catch all of it. I don't know if the promos were shown in the arena back then, like they are now. So Dusty makes that announcement and then you hear Macho Man's music play again, but this time it's Miss Elizabeth coming out to be in the corner of Dusty Rhodes and Sapphire. And they had teased it in an interview earlier that Miss Elizabeth seemed kind of sad that she wasn't able to do her managerial duties and she's been performing in an advisory role. So they made sense of all this. So we get a pretty decent match. Um, With mixed tags, it was supposed to be the guys fight the guys, women fight the women. You get a lot of back-and-forth action in here, a lot of good comedy from Dusty and Sapphire. Sapphire is not a wrestler, number one, when you're watching this. She's doing, like, a lot of hip-thrust attacks, you know, giving Sherry the booty bump. Sherry's selling it like she's getting hit with a rock in her face. Like, she's just flailing all over the place, and Sapphire is just walking around dancing. Savage and Sherry get good heat, though, on the baby faces by grabbing Sapphire by her hair or you know getting dusty roads and smacking him around too both sides played their roles very well in this um we get a good surprise with miss elizabeth and sherry this makes so much sense going a year down the line too i can't even get into it but sherry goes to grab miss elizabeth's hair because she can't stand the sight of her and elizabeth eventually gets away and she gets knocked back into a pinfall by sapphire with a roll-up um so I think that's the first time I've ever seen Miss Elizabeth get physical. And one, two, three for the roll-up. And Dusty and Sapphire get the win. They celebrate in the ring with Miss Elizabeth with some dancing and celebration. Toronto was feeling it in this one. Oh, yeah. I gave this a grade of a B-. minus. I thought this was very well done. Um, Sapphire wasn't the greatest of wrestler, but that moment and everything just culminating was really good, in my opinion. I thought so, too. I thought it was well done. I thought it was a nice reemergence of Elizabeth. I think it was really cool to see her come back. It would definitely be like the start of a year-long storyline where Miss Elizabeth was back in Macho Man's life. Unfortunately, they were on opposite sides, but that would all lead to what would happen the following year when they would reunite, um, on screen reunite, that is. But I want to take a quick minute. Uh, I don't want to, you know, make this too somber, but I did mention a lot of late greats, and I want to go down the parameters of this card. And just pay homage to some of the people that we've lost, some of the greats that we lost. Um, on WrestleMania 6, April 1st, 1990, um, there were several people who performed that gave us such great memories who are no longer with us. Rest in peace to Andre the Giant. Rest in peace to Earthquake, um, a.k.a. John Tenta. Uh, rest in peace to Raymond Fernandez, also known, uh, known as Hercules. Uh, rest in peace to Kurt Henning, Mr. Perfect. Rest in peace to uh, Alan uh, James Coadge, a.k.a. Badgers Brown. Rest in peace to Roddy Piper. Rest in peace to Jim the Anvil Nightheart. Rest in peace to Nikolai Volkov. Uh, 
Um, man, this is tough. Oh my goodness. Uh, rest in peace to Dusty Rhodes. Rest in peace to Sapphire. Rest in peace to Miss Elizabeth. Rest in peace to the sensational Queen Sherry. Rest in peace to Macho Man, Randy Savage. Um, I'm just continuing to go down the parameters of the show. Rest in peace to Mr. Fuji. Wow. Rest in peace to Canadian strongman Dino Bravo. Rest in peace to, oh my goodness, Ray Trailer, the big boss man. Um, rest in peace to Ravishing Rick Root. Uh, rest in peace to Jimmy Superfly Snooker, and rest in peace to um, the Ultimate Warrior. God bless their souls. Uh, it's truly, um, it breaks my heart to even go down the parameters and, and do that, but I just wanted to pay respect and honor to their lives because the memories that they have given us, along with many others, it will never, ever be forgotten. So thank you guys. Uh, up in heaven for all your contributions we really appreciate it okay so i just want to do that right quick conrad i didn't want to throw you off track but you know i felt it no, was only right no it's it's one of the sad parts of going through these old shows like that like you yeah. can go through any of these shows from the late 80s early 90s and it's just sad to uh see how many people have passed away um including some of the referees even that we don't talk about yes, yes. gorilla monsoon it's just sad man whether they went with cancer drug or overdoses or whatever it's um uh, it's a tough game, but as a kid, they're always in my memories for how they entertained, you know? That's how you always want to see them, kind of. Most definitely. Well, that, the, well, well said. Rest in peace to Gorilla Monsoon. Rest in peace to Bobby Heenan. Rest in peace to referee uh, Joey Morella, who's the son of Gorilla Monsoon, who unfortunately died long before his time. Um, wow. But... Oh, I'm getting a little emotional here, bro. Let me let me reel it back in. I'm sorry about that, guys, but I just wanted to do that. That's that's respect. You know what I'm saying? We love this business and we love the history, so we got to pay respect to those who are no longer with us. But let's get back on track. Um, the Orient Express. Uh, we mentioned earlier that uh, Mr. Fuji had sold the contract of the Warlord to the Doctor of Style Slick, sold the contract of the Barbarian to Bobby the Brain Heenan. So that left... Mr. Fuji without a team, and uh, he acquired the services of Tanaka and Sato, the Orient Express, who would go into a WrestleMania match with the Red Hot Rockers, and my goodness, man, what a surprise outcome, well, at least in my mind, surprise outcome would take place during this match. Talk about it, man. Uh, the Orient Express, the Rockers, WrestleMania 6. Oh, man, the Orient Express. Um, I always enjoyed their theme. Don't ask me why. I just always enjoyed that theme. <laughs> um, very generic, but always fun. And if you guys didn't know, the Rockers, one of my favorite tag teams. Um, I was actually in a group chat for Twitter with a bunch of people I work with uh, on Brain Buster Radio. And we were talking about, someone made a graphic the other day, and it kind of had a heart on it. it. It dealt with whatever the other two people were talking about. And I said, oh, that looks like a Valentine's Day uh, kind of thing that you would give a kid back then. And I used to tell people, if you were a girl, so hopefully if any girls ever listened and they went to school with me, they're going to find this out. If I gave you the Rockers Valentine's Day card, that meant you were the one. You were wifey potential, because the Rockers were my favorite tag team of all time. Uh... Dang, man. The Orient Express were really good for uh, their time. I just, I don't know. They were bad timing, man. They had to be heels, and it just, I don't know. I feel bad for those guys. 
I prefer the team with Kato as well for the Orient Express. I don't know. I always thought the mask was cool. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Just little minor details about it. But the Rockers absolutely love their double team moves. If you've never seen them, you're going to see lots of double team drop kicks, super kicks, uh, double team back body drops. They were tag team specialists is what the commentary team always said about them. Uh, really good stuff in here. Now, here's a spot that I have not seen used in a long time, and I have to give props. Shawn Michaels is my favorite of all time. Even when he was in the Rockers, trust me, I had the little action figures where they could jump off the ropes, and Shawn Michaels was always my favorite. I still have it to this day. So awesome. But Shawn Michaels was really good, but so was Marty Jannetty. Shawn learned a lot from Marty Jannetty, and you have to be honest when it comes to that when you're looking at the greatness of Shawn Michaels. And during this match, I saw a spot that I have not seen used in years. And I'm putting it out there. Maybe a wrestler could eventually use this because I'll get a pop out of it. Marty Jannetty gets Irish whipped off the ropes. And usually you go into a back body drop. They do the motion of a back body drop. And Marty Jannetty landed on his feet. That is amazing for awesome. someone to be able to do that. Especially during 1990. They weren't doing flashy moves like they are now. And Marty Jannetty was able to do that. I'm very impressed with it. Now... This was a really fun match until you get to kind of the finish. I don't know what they were thinking with this. So the Orient Express, I think they were trying to establish them as the new top heel team for Mr. Fuji. And what they wound up doing was on the outside, I can't remember which one of them. I want to say maybe it was, uh, was it Saito? Saito? Who, who hit who hit Marty well, with the salt? The, yeah, who threw the powder or something? Oh, Sa- Sato. Sato hit him with the salt, yeah. Yeah, so he ends up hitting him with the salt in the eyes, and Marty Jannetty is blinded by this. Um, Fuji, the evil man with the cane, I always liked that role for Fuji better than the Yokozuna role he got. I know he got more of shine with that, but loved him with the cane. So Marty Jannetty's trying to figure out what's going on. He gets nailed in the face with the powder. Marty Jannetty is out there stumbling, and I thought he did a good job of selling this, too, to the fans because they were up on a platform a little bit so that the fans could see the ring and everything else a little bit better. And Marty Jannetty was covering his eyes, and he tried to wipe his eyes on the ring apron, but there was so much salt in it that he ends up stumbling over, and he falls over the barricade into where the fans were. It it just made it seem more believable when you got close to the wrestlers. The closer you get to the fans, I feel like you got to kind of – I got to lay into you a little bit, brother, just so you know, <laughs> just to keep it looking real. Right. And Marty did a good job with that. They ended up losing by count out. The Orient Express get the win here. Um, it just pains me, man, that the Rockers never got a title reign. Um, they had so many opportunities, especially during this year, to become tag team champions. But I gave this a C plus. I thought they did some good wrestling in here. Weak finish could have been a little bit better, but... That's my thoughts on it. What, what do you think, Sean? I could not disagree with you more, and I'm surprised to say that, man, because we're usually on the same page. But I got to tell you, man, I thought the salt thing was awesome. I thought I thought the whole way that they set that thing up, where Marty Jannetty and Shawn Michaels were on the top rope getting ready to do the double fist drop, you know, little love tap, as Jesse Ventura called it, uh, with Fuji and the cane on Marty Jannetty, drops the cane, Marty picks it up, Sato runs all the way around the ring, and I, look, we're, we're both wrestling guys, and for all my listeners out there, you're wrestling people. We've seen the powder before. That looked like salt. Now, I'm sure it couldn't be salt because that really would have blinded him, but the consistency, I know I'm picking for straws here, but it looked like the consistency, it just seemed like it was a little more solid. I didn't see that puff of smoke that the powder usually gives. 
it looked like that was salt or something in the salt family. I don't know what it was, but it was something in the salt. But it was really well done. I loved it. I don't know why. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm bugging, but I thought that was really well done. Do, do you know what I think hurt it for me? If you go back and look at a lot of these matches, we saw, so let's, I'm going back on my notes here. Last match, finish was a roll-up. Match before that, we had a top rope clothesline. Heart attack win. Then before that, we had a count out. Uh, we had a slingshot for a pin. I just think that once you start getting into the, there's a lot of count outs during these time uh-huh. periods. Right. I get sick of seeing them a little bit. I'm just like, bro, like this is WrestleMania. Give me the finish. And even back then, I kind of always felt like that. Like on pay-per-view, I want to see a finish or something happen. You could still do something after the match to get me into it. But I, just a count out for the Rockers, you know what I mean? So uh, instead so instead of the count out, let's go back in time. Let's go back in time to 1990. Let's go back in time to that very moment in the match where Sato blasts him in the eyes with the salt, right? And Janetti's flailing around and falling into the front row. And instead of the Orient Express being satisfied with the count out, here comes Tanaka. He picks up Marty Janetti, throws him back in the ring, and Sato rolls him up for a schoolboy pin. Are you happier? No, I would prefer that maybe they hit a super kick or something for the okay. victory. All right. For how it is. Yeah, I, I don't care. Like, you've already done your damage with that. I think this goes back to Vince McMahon trying to satisfy both sides. Right. I think he was trying to satisfy Fuji on one end because I don't think the Orient Express were really going into Vince's office to complain about this type of stuff. <laughs> Right. Uh, Fuji seems like, hey, I need to look strong, Vince. I need to. Right. And you've heard rib stories about him. This dude will cook your dog. I've no heard. Offense. I've heard. I'm well, like, Mr. I'm Fuji is an evil man. So he was in there probably trying to get his. He's like, this is a new tag team. Don't make me look like a joke. Hey, look, you stole, you stole the, uh, you stole the powers of pain from me. Come on, give me a break. Exactly. So he had reason to complain. On the rocker side, though, they're like, listen, bro. You know what happened with us. We should be in the tag title picture. What is going on with us? And I think this is where the frustration begins to start with the Rockers. And, and you know how that turns out a couple of years later. But oh, yes. The frustration here seems like it's starting to set in like, come on, man. Are we going to get something out of this or is this like dead? And this is when I start to worry about the Rockers. Not yet. I'm not super worried. It's just kind of like, oh, okay. Whatever. But to, but to your point, but to your point, it's coming. You're right. Mm-hmm. So C plus I felt was warranted for this, and that's no ill will towards the Orient Express. And maybe I'm being a little biased because I'm a Rockers fan, but like I said, good match. Just hated the finish. I was a Rockers fan too, but I'm also with you on the Orient Express theme song. I thought it was also. Uh, I thought it was awesome. Also, um, also the Bull Nakano theme as well. Uh, you know, it was. I think. WWE yep. kind of dropped the ball, though, because, like, the Orient Express theme, it's their theme because they had it first from what I remember, but then every, like, Japanese wrestler, like, forever after that had the same theme with the exception of Yokozuna, who wasn't really Japanese. But, see, if I get if I go down this road, I'll get confused, so I don't want to do myself dirty like that. I'm going to stay on task, but, yes, uh, a big win. Look, a big win for the Orient Express at WrestleMania, for God's sake. I mean, the Orient Express... Tanaka and Sato defeated the former. Now this is really me. This is me building it up now, right? Okay, so bear with me. Tanaka and Sato defeated a former Intercontinental and Tag Team Champion, and another former Intercontinental Tag Team 
and one of the greatest world champions of all time. The Orient Express did that, right? So I, I, I feel like you're rubbing the salt into my wound. I am, I am. I'm glad you're picking up on that. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to let this upset me. If I really wanted to take it further, I'd be like, hey, you know what? Tanaka and Sato defeated the heartbreak kid Shawn right, Michaels. All right, all right. <laughs> I gotta cut him off here, folks. He's getting disrespectful. That's oh man, like that's him. awesome stuff. Okay, <laughs> a little levity, a little joke is always a good thing, man. We're having fun, bro. So, um, yeah. So the Orient Express are victorious, and we move on into the show. We're at match 11 of a 15 match card, 14 matches on the air from the Toronto Sky Dome, April 1st, 1990. Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Uh, I'm gonna make fun of him. You know what's coming. Um. Goes up against Dino Bravo with the earthquake and Jimmy Hart in his corner. Hacksaw Jim Duggan comes down the ramp in the cart with an American flag. And no music. No mu- Well, the no music thing was also annoying. He didn't get music for another few months. But I'll tell you what, man. You're coming down the aisle in Canada. Let me, let me t- see. This is just between me, you, and the masses, bro. We're going to talk real right now, okay? If Canada was as real as they say they are, and I think Canada is a wonderful country, shout out to the Toronto Raptors in the NBA Finals, shout out to WrestleManias that have taken place there, I'm a big fan of Toronto in general, I'm a big fan of Canada in general, but you know what, if Canadian fans were doing things the right way, they should have booed Hacksaw Jim Duggan out of the building. How dare you come down the aisle in Toronto with an American flag and expect... And by the way, going up against a Canadian. Dino Bravo is a Canadian. You know what? I'm going to let you take this because I'm getting upset. Good, because I could probably explain this. But I do have one question for you. Do you know at this time, were WrestleManias taped or were they live or was it like a partial? Oh, no, no, no. WrestleMania was live. Yeah, then, but... I don't know if this this footage has been dubbed over. You got to be careful with the WWE Network because that's where I watched this on. Well, I, I had the old school uh, Coliseum video cassette too, bro. Oh, so then it's that's the actual fan reaction. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Come on, Toronto. Well, here here's here's how I can justify all this then. I listen. Uh, I need you to justify it because I'm getting fired up about this thing. Dino Bravo sucks. I'm sorry. <laughs> Dino Bravo was never good, bro. Like, he is not my favorite wrestler of all time. He's probably my least favorite wrestler on this card. Um, I'm just not a Dino Bravo guy, man. He was... Oh, like, He's the world's strongest man, for God's sake. Oh, you're going back to when he was bench pressing with Jesse Ventura and he needed the help? He single hit. Don't you get me? He single-handedly, all by himself, with nobody else's help... Set the world bench press record. I don't know what you saw, but I saw him set the record all by himself. Man, Dino Bravo, uh, managed by Jimmy Hart, a company. Earthquake was the best thing about this. <laughs> um, and, and here's another thing. Right. I've met Hacksaw Jim Duggan many a times. Uh, Glenn Falls, New York. I've seen him come around my way. I actually think he's doing a uh, signing at one of the comic book shops up here soon. Nice. And real uh, quick, I, mean, I heard he was under the weather at one point recently. I'm glad he's yeah. doing a little better, I think, right? Yes, yes. I, I don't know if it was for heart reasons or whatnot, but Hacksaw, I'm glad to see you're doing better. Hacksaw's yes. another guy you can talk sports with. Hacksaw Jim Duncan's a cool dude. Uh, shout out to the people at work who used to always say, hey, go talk to that guy. He's a wrestling fan. And Duncan would come up to him and be like, hey, man, how you doing? And right. he would stick his hand out there. Always a stand-up guy. Reminds you of the guy you see on Legends House. Love him. Um, but 
I'm not. I was not the biggest hacksaw Jim Duggan fan either. I did not understand the two by four bit. Um, I think he could have been a bigger star, hundred percent. People were into him. He, it just wasn't my thing. Um, so this match, I have Yawn in here, number one. <laughs> I, was, I was hurting at this point. This is when I was thinking, like, man, why did he have me watch this? Because I have to see this match. Because it's Dino Bravo. It's history. So, it's history. It is. It is. So Duggan um, stops Dino Bravo from using the two-by-four that Jimmy Hart threw into the ring during a referee distraction. Duggan ends up using the two-by-four on Dino Bravo. That back wasn't that strong because when he got hit with this, he went down like a ton of bricks. We get the uh, three count for Duggan. Duggan picks up the win. I gave this a D-plus, and I'm going to throw it to you for the aftermatch because I don't really have too much more to say about this. This wasn't designed to get either of these guys over. It gave Duggan the win. Duggan was the bigger star, obviously. And it got heat for uh, Jimmy Hart and Earthquake, and I'm sure they told Dino Bravo the same thing. You're going to get great heat from this. And I'll kick it to you, though, so you can uh, explain what happened after the match. My face is scrunched up, and I'm going into super heel mode right now, okay? Here's the deal. Shout out to Hacksaw Jim Duggan, the man. God bless you. Glad you're doing well. But let me tell you something. From a kayfabe storyline standpoint, Hacksaw Jim Duggan got absolutely what he deserved after the match, Jesse Ventura was 100% right. If you want to cheat, you're going to pay for it. You came into Canada with an American flag. You should have brought in a Canadian flag. I don't care if you're from Glen Falls, New York. Show some respect for where you're at. Dino Bravo was the hometown hero, the man who single-handedly, all by himself, with nobody's help, had the world indoor attendance record. You cheat to beat him. I give the match a D. I give after the match an A plus 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 plus. I am so pleased, was so pleased with Dino Bravo and especially the Earthquake and Jimmy Hart for teaching Hacksaw Jim Duggan a lesson, and that's all I have to say. I'm fired up about it. And, and Dino Bravo's from uh, Quebec. He always had the Quebec flag. <laughs> so what? It's the same. It's it's Canada. Thumbs down for me, man. Boo. Oh, come on. Come on. You know, I'm so I'm so disappointed with whoever was in that 67,000 back in 1990 at the Sky Dome. Whoever you may have been. All you 67, 678 who had tickets, you should have booed Hacksaw out of the building. You should have been on your feet cheering your Canadian hero, Dino Bravo. I know you hear me. You can get silent all you want. I know you hear me. I'm shaking my head. <laughs> that's all That's all you need to know is when I hear something about Dino Bravo, there's just head shaking going on. And you know what, um, Sean? This is going to be a little off topic. Have you seen those Viceland series? Oh, my God. Awesome. Awesome. I really want one on um, a couple people that are in this. I want one on Dino Bravo because okay. I think that's an interesting story, and I'd love to hear more about what happened and – how he got involved in all that stuff. I don't know if you are familiar with the story. I, I am. It's pretty, pretty, you know, pretty controversial. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just wonder. I don't know how much information they're gonna be able to get out of that, but that is a very interesting story. I won't spoil it in case they do do one on it. Yeah. Shout out to the to the proprietors of the um, the wrestling. Uh, excuse me. The the dark side of the ring. Um, 
docuseries. Unbelievable. So good. So good. I'm looking forward to the next installments. Hopefully there will be because they're doing a tremendous job. The Macho Man one was awesome with Elizabeth. Uh, I really particularly enjoyed the Gino Fernandez one. Oh, my God. They, they've done some tremendous work. My favorite was Bruiser Brody. There you go. I mean, all all six, I believe, of them. I think there were six were tremendous. So, um, yeah, really, really good. And I'm looking forward to whatever comes next. So, um, yeah, so Jim Duggan successful in a very shady and underhanded cheating way over the Canadian hero, Dino Bravo. <laughs> but we'll move on because I see that Conrad's getting silent because he's upset I'm, giving, I'm putting Dino Bravo over so much. Um, <laughs> but here we go. We have a title match, uh, a little unorthodox title match coming up. We know the IC and WWE championships coming up a little later. We know we have the World Tag Team Championships. Those are the only three uh, sanctioned titles in WWE. But there was an unsanctioned title on the line at WrestleMania 6. Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase's Million Dollar Belt was on the line against Jake the Snake Roberts. This feud was literally oh my goodness a year in the making um man really it was a year in the making wrestlemania 5 ted dibiase interfered in the jake roberts andre match he stole damian the snake um uh that started like a year-long feud of of like back and forths and jake stealing the belt and DiBiase trying to steal Damien again and Virgil getting involved in Jake the Snake's matches and after all the back and forth it led to a, a time where you know DiBiase would very rarely put the million dollar belt up but since Jake stole it the only way that they were going to settle their differences is that they were going to put the title on the line even though Ted DiBiase was the million dollar man the match went off where the title was actually considered vacant there was no million dollar champion DiBiase went to the ring without the belt. Um, Jake the Snake Roberts went to the ring without the belt. And the winner of this match would be the Million Dollar Champion. So I'm going to throw it to you, CK. Um, the Million Dollar Man trying to reclaim his property with Virgil in his corner against the Snake Man. Uh, the Golden Diamonds are on the line. Talk to the people. Um, now, I know last match I said yawn, and it wasn't to disrespect the characters. I think at this point in the show, things were getting a little rough. Um, for how you had to do things. Now, during this match at some point, the fans were doing the wave. Now, Toronto was always known as kind of that wacky crowd, and I think they started a lot of this, even at this show, where they would do things in the crowd that would take away from the match. It's not like today where we see beach balls and stuff pop up, but the crowd doing the wave makes you wonder, are they enjoying themselves, or are they not enjoying the show? I don't know how to feel about that, because you can't really tell from a, a big group like that who's enjoying and who isn't but they were starting to get restless but to credit the million dollar man and jake the snake roberts and i'll even give some credit to my boy meat sauce they were able to reel the people back in and they stopped doing all that stuff mm -hmm. very very smart of them now i feel bad for both these guys too because they fall in the same category we talked about with mr perfect earlier they could have been world champions. They should have been in some main event pictures, I felt, at this time. I felt Especially DiBiase. Yeah, DiBiase was not utilized properly after his feud with the Mega Powers. I don't know what happened to him and how he just became like this upper mid-card kind of feud. But I felt that you still could have did more with DiBiase. And Jake the Snake, uh, he just never got his just due because he was always on the wrong side of uh, what was going on with Hogan. 
I felt that he was just always plateaued at where he was going to be. But these guys both sold tickets, not going to lie. Um, another count-out victory. DiBiase ends up picking up the victory after Virgil eats a uh, body slam in here. But I give it a C-plus because I still thought it was a very good match. Well-worked. DiBiase could go in the ring. Same with Jake the Snake. When he motioned for that DDT in the ring before he got counted out, the fans went crazy for it. Oh, yeah. They all stood up like, oh, you know what time it is? He's waving the finger. Someone's about to eat a DDT, and that's one of wrestling fans' favorite moves. Um, he didn't end up getting it, and afterwards, the Jake the Snake's going out, giving out money to little kids. I assume it's real money? It, was it, it looked like small. It looked like real money. Though. It looked like real money, yeah. Yeah, and he also gave money to Mary Tyler Moore, who, uh, in my notes, I said she couldn't be more confused than anybody out here. <laughs> like, you could tell she wasn't a wrestler fan. She was like, oh, he gave me money. Thanks. You're Look, nice I, I, like, oh, wait till you see what he's about to pull out that bag. If I were a betting to... man, if I were a betting man, I would say that uh, Mary Tyler Moore, those tickets were definitely comped. Oh, 100%. <laughs> Uh, and I think that was part of the ploy for WrestleMania 7 when they advertised it being in uh, the Coliseum, which never actually happens. Right. I'll say that for your WrestleMania 7 review. I think that was to show stars need to be at WrestleMania, and we want all the Hollywood people that we can as part of their international or global launch to get more people involved into WrestleMania. But DiBiase, he tries to stuff money down his throat, he spits it out, and then as soon as Damien gets pulled out, right before he can put him on the Million Dollar Man... Virgil comes in with that meat sauce, and he ends up saving the Million Dollar Man, doing his job for the money, and uh, he pulls out DiBiase as they escape, and it looks like this feud isn't over. So they did try to send the people home happy, but uh, what did you think of it? I thought it was good. As a matter of fact, you'll be surprised by my grade. I gave it a B plus. I thought it was really well done. Um, I think the count-out finish in this particular case, uh, don't ask me for another match because... I'd say something different. But for this particular match, I thought the story was told well enough where a count-out was sufficient. Um, again, you know me. I don't do just bell-to-bell. Bell. I do from entrance to walking out. So from entrance to walking out, um, which includes the post-match DDT, which, which includes the giving out of the money, which includes the stuffing the million-dollar man uh, mouth with the $100 bill, all that stuff included. I thought it was well done. I thought it was a technically sound match. you got to remember that DiBiase and Jake were so good in the ring as well. Even though they were amazing characters, they were also technicians. So they fought a very good match strategically. They fought a, a very good match technically. And they fought a very good match as it pertained to their characters and their storylines. So, um, again, not bell to bell, but all things included from the time they walked out the curtain to the time they walked back through the curtain, um, I thought it was awesome. Now, we'll learn that DiBiase didn't technically go back through the curtain, but uh, DiBiase and Jake, as well as Virgil, running out, running back in, I thought it was well done. I'll give it a B plus. So, you know, I, I definitely thought it was a good match, and I'm definitely looking forward to uh, was looking forward to seeing what would happen uh, moving forward. I don't think much happened moving forward after that. Them winning, uh, you know, DiBiase winning back the million dollar belt, um, Conrad pretty much signified the end of the rivalry. Am I right? Yeah. Um, you could you could have it continue from so. See, the count out ending makes me feel like there's maybe more to the story, or mm -hmm. this is gonna end on superstars, because you got to remember during this time, the world champ wasn't always on the big shows. He maybe would do one a month, maybe appear at one or two, and then he'd go do signings or something else. 
those shows were for the DiBiases, the Jake the Snakes. They looked like the stars of those shows. It, it was well done for how Vince had everything set up and he could keep people, you know, happy at the same time. Like, listen, you're the star of this show right now. I need you. Versus him saying it to someone like Hogan who already knows the deal. Like, listen, I, I got the belt, brother. <laughs> this isn't going to work for me. I'm dropping the leg drop on this guy. All right. But he could keep multiple people satisfied. And I think that was one of the things he did very well during this time period. I also want to say this, too, for people who are here in my grading systems and everything else. C's are not bad at all. They're, they're actually pretty good. The problem with... In what uh, world... Uh-uh. No, can't let you get away with that, bro. In what world is a C good? A C is good as far as wrestling matches are concerned because they're average. It's what I expected. It was cool. I'm fine with this. You get, you're able to go on. I'm fine with that. It's not the greatest thing in the world because sometimes during these shows, I felt like they saved them for other spots. This is why it's hard sometimes to go back and do these. Okay. Good wrestling, but it's not anything that's bad at all. It's just, it, it was good. It was fine. I, could you have gave me a little bit more? Of course, but it, it's fine. A B is good to really good. A's are excellent. And when you, once we start getting to the D range... <laughs> I've got examples for what a D-range match is, and you don't want to be in that because that's – you're forcing me to give you that. Like Goldberg Mongo, that's D-range. Uh, who was the chick from TNA with Charmel? Charmel and um, – oh, I can't remember who she had that horrible match with. You know which one I'm talking about, though, with the horrible slaps and all that? That's F. Oh, wow. Like, yeah, Who definitely. booked this? Like, I need to know. So don't, I just don't want people to get the wrong idea when they hear C. So Ted DiBiase retains the Million Dollar Championship, or regains technically the Million Dollar Championship because the title was considered vacant going into the match. And um, really good job by WWE. Um, no mistake that the following match would be something that would tie into the DiBiase storyline. A couple weeks earlier on WWE television, Ted DiBiase along with Virgil were guests on the Brother Love Show along with the Dr. Style Slick. Akeem, I believe, was there, as well as the Big Boss Man. Maybe, matter of fact, I don't think Akeem was there. I think it was the Big Boss Man along with Slick, and they were all there. Uh, the storyline with Jake the Snake Roberts was progressing with DiBiase, and DiBiase uh, had lost the million-dollar belt when, you know, when Jake took it away and put it in the bag with Damien. So DiBiase enlisted the services of Slick via the Big Boss Man. Um, Big Boss Man was supposed to beat up Jake the Snake, take the bag back, take the belt back, take the snake back, take everything back to make sure that DiBiase got back the million dollar belt. Only one problem is on the Brother Love show, Big Boss Man didn't know that the services were paid for. Now this is the weird part. Weird in a good way, because I was a Big Boss Man fan. I love the Twin Towers, but I like the Big Boss Man. But the thing is, the Big Boss Man was a heel. So getting paid off for good work shouldn't be a bother. But for some reason, him getting paid for the services of getting the snake and the belt back from Jake annoyed him. He felt like that was him not being a proper police officer, for lack of better terms. Even though he was perfectly fine beating the crap out of people with uh, nightsticks and, 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 you know, just dogging people out after matches he was cool with that but you know if you try and pay me that's where i crossed the line but you know whatever it is what it is boss man took offense uh decided to give the belt and the snake back to jake 
and was you know t- told Ted DiBiase, I cannot be bought. Um, so that that leaves the WWE and the Big Boss Man in particular with two separate storylines. Now the Boss Man has an issue with Ted DiBiase, but he also has a problem with now his former tag team partner Akeem, which is, would lead to uh, their match at WrestleMania Six, the Big Boss Man and Akeem, uh, I guess to decide the you know the the king of the Twin Towers. And I'll give it to you, Conrad, because Akeem's in the ring with Slick. Uh, Slick looking as dapper as he can look. Akeem shucking and jiving and doing what everything that I loved about uh, about his character from day one. I thought it was totally awesome and totally entertaining. The big boss man comes down with his fresh, brand new look. You know, he slimmed down his fresh, brand new theme music. But he doesn't quite make it into the ring. Tell the people why. Um, because if you ever take a trip down to Cow County, Georgia, <laughs> no, uh, Bossman came out, he's wearing his classic attire, and he actually ends up getting attacked by the Million Dollar Man. So some nice story uh, continuity in there for people who didn't seem to understand why DiBiase stayed out there. It was because Bossman refused, and the Million Dollar Man character is supposed to be Vince McMahon. They used to call him the Million Dollar Man because he's always going to figure out a way to get what he wants. Mm-hmm. So DiBiase didn't get his way, so he's like, I'm going to take it out on him. So Boss Man gets attacked before the match starts. It gives Akeem an unfair advantage, and Akeem ends up taking Boss Man to the deepest, darkest parts of Africa when he is splashing this man all over the place in this uh, classic big man match. Um, at one point, Akeem, which I rarely saw from him, I've seen him stand on, like, the bottom rope and punch people, but he, this time he stood up on the second rope and was laying the fist in on Big Boss Man. And look, if you guys don't know Akeem, a.k.a. One Man Gang, this is a tall, big dude. This is nobody who's light. Like, this is a guy I want on my line when we're playing football. This is a big boy. And Boss Man took him off the top rope and tried to spine buster him or drop him onto his knee. I don't know what it was supposed to be, but Akeem was a heavy dude, and he ended up dropping him. Really good stuff in here, though. It was just a classic, what you would expect, big man match. Uh, they were in there laying in their stuff, and Boss Man ends up picking up the victory with a nice Boss Man slam on Akeem. I thought Akeem took it very well, sold it like a champ, and Boss Man is established as the new babyface. And I wanted to, real quick before I kick it back to you, piggyback off of what could have led to the big boss man being a babyface. I think that there was just opportunity there to have a good cop, bad cop kind of scenario with big boss man. And from all the stories going on during those times back in the day that probably influenced Vince with like the uh, 77th Precinct Buddy Boys, Mm -hmm. they had a lot of scandals with cops going on at the time, people being dirty cops. And I thought maybe Vince thought he could capitalize on having some positivity in his company and having someone else to align with Hulk Hogan. Because Hogan said he always enjoyed working with Boss Man. I think that one Boss Man some favor, put him as a baby face. But I'm kicking it back to you. To your point, Boss Man was in Hogan's corner at SummerSlam, and Boss Man was a member of the Hulkamaniac team at Survivor Series 90. So you're 100% right about that. A little tidbit and a little bit of fun fact about this match. Um... I wasn't in Sky Dome. Again, I was very young and in New York, and the show was in Toronto, so I couldn't be there. But I do know that there are probably about a handful of people, maybe 20, 30 people, that had a view 
and have a memory that nobody else in the crowd or nobody else in pay-per-view had. And that's the group of people sitting in the front row, maybe third, fourth, fifth, second row, that were able to see Ted DiBiase slide out of the ring and underneath the ring, which led to him attacking the boss man. Nobody else in the building saw it. Nobody on television saw it. But when Virgil, you know, came back to save DiBiase from getting the snake put on him and things of that nature, DiBiase was casually slid out of the ring, and probably about 20 people in the entire 67,000 in the building were able to see him slide under the ring. So I'm sure for those people who are sitting front row on the television side of the Toronto Sky Dome, uh, have a fun memory to always keep in their minds because uh, they're the only people in the world who know or who knew that DiBiase was still at ringside. So that's a really cool, really cool tidbit, how he was slid out of the ring, slid underneath the ring, and then the rest was history. The last preliminary match of the night would be former Intercontinental Champion, the only man who had ever defeated the Ultimate Warrior Four Championship in history, ravishing Rick Rude with his manager Bobby the Brain Heenan going up against um, 1980s star, probably at the top of his game in 84 85 but since his return in 1989 probably not the best version of jimmy superfly snooker but still jimmy snooker was a tremendous name uh first ballot hall of famer so you had rick rude going up against jimmy snooker uh rick rude would be victorious predictably victorious especially considering the run he was about to be on where he would you know end up being back in the ultimate warriors face but um your assessment of this match, CK, Rick Rude, the former Intercontinental Champion, going up against the Hall of Famer Jimmy Snuka, Bobby the Brain Heenan in Rick Rude's corner, Rick Rude, you know, no longer the Intercontinental Champion, kind of in a situation where, hey, is he going to get a push, is he not, uh, not really a high-profile match, it's the lead into the main event, so the whole world is watching, but give us your assessment of this match. All right, before I get into that, I want to give a little tidbit before. I don't know if I set my grade for Akeem Bossman. I gave it a C. Okay. We get into Mary Tyler Moore, who was interviewed. This is when I knew she had no clue about what was going on. Right. She had no idea about Rhythm and Blues. And Rhythm and Blues came out to do a horrible song. Uh, I think it was Hunka, Hunka, Honky Love. Hunka, 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 Honky Love. Now... I, I'm pretty sure you know this, so I'm going to let you give it out. Do you know who drove them to the ring for this match? I believe it's the former WCW champion, the former European champion, the former United States champion, and more importantly, because she was so hot, the husband, former husband of Kimberly Page. I'm talking about Diamond Dallas Page. DDP. I just wanted people to know that, um, and then the Bushwhackers come out and stomp the guitars. Just a fun little fact in case people always wonder what WrestleMania it is that DDP appeared on first. It's WrestleMania 6, folks. That's a fact. And I just want to throw in there, yes, I had a massive crush on Kimberly Page. Sorry, DDP, but your ex-wife was gorgeous. Facts. But that's with all due respect, Mr. Page. Yes. Um, yes. Ravishing Rick Rude versus Jimmy Snuka. Jimmy Snuka was the other person I was talking about that I'd love to see a uh, Viceland doc on as far as the whole situation with him in Pennsylvania. Um, and I won't spoil it. You guys can look it up yourselves for what happened. But Jimmy Superfly Snooker was someone as kids that I think it's safe to say that we all wanted to be. Growing up in the 80s, 
Listen, my parents used to let me run around the house in my underwear. It didn't matter. And I used to go on top of dressers when I was a lot lighter, trust me. And I would jump off of them and I would do the Superfly Jimmy Snooker splashes onto someone's bed, onto the Hulk Hogan wrestling buddy. It didn't matter. Jimmy Snooker was someone that you could always try to, like, idolize. He walked around with the bare feet. Give him lots of credit. Ravishing Rick Rude, I think you set up perfectly where he was in his career. Um, he was kind of at a crossroads between are we going to push this guy into the main event or is he in mid-card for life? And it, it pains me to know that Rick Rude did not like being managed by Bobby the Brain Heenan. Um, one of the only people I've ever heard say that he did not enjoy it. He felt Bobby was kind of stealing his shine a little bit. And, you and know, it's funny know because they, it's funny because I thought they were a perfect match. Me too. I thought the same thing. And I think maybe if Rick was a little more open to working with Bobby, because you could tell after when they're walking out of this match, the, the dissension, I guess we'll say, that it just wasn't the perfect mix for Rude, in his opinion. But I thought Bobby the Brain Heenan always put Rick Rude over. He always made him shine and uh, let him do his thing. But Rick Rude always had kind of a tough attitude. Funny story, I won't say which job, but at one of my jobs, um, someone who was a supervisor over me once got punched in the face by Rick Rude. Oh, my God. I will not, I will not go into it on air because I, I want to preserve uh, the thing for it. But Rick Rude punched him in the face, ended up missing the wrestling taping, spent the night in a jail, and he went back the next day afterwards to apologize to him. So I always thought of that, and I'm like, that is such a Rick Rube story when you hear the crazy stories about this guy from WWF to WCW. Uh, Rick Rube was just a rebel on the road. And to that, you got a basic Rick Rube match here with uh, Jimmy Snuka. They had Jimmy Snuka looking well, but this is kind of the winding down days of Jimmy Snuka. Not that he couldn't perform anymore, but he couldn't perform at that top level. Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't, you know... Off the top of the cage to Don Morocco, Jimmy Snuka. Yeah, he, he just became Jimmy Snuka, who I can go in there and put on a match with you. Let's roll with this. Yeah. Um, he ends up eating the Rude Awakening 1-2-3. I really don't have much else to say, but they, the right guy went over. And um, overall, great for this one would be a solid C. It was, a, it was short, sweet, and what needed to happen. I've used this term a million times during the show, but it's very appropriate. Hindsight being 2020. You had to have Rude win that match, knowing what they were going to do moving forward. Um, again, I think we both are correct in our assessment that they weren't 100% sure it was going to happen. But they played on the fact that Rude was the only person to beat the, the Warrior uh, for a championship, which would obviously lead to what would happen later on in the year. Um, but, you know, you had to have him go over at WrestleMania uh, in order to uh, make him believable to have a world title run or at least a world t title uh, be in the world title picture as he would that following summer. So, oh man, this leads us to the main event, and this is why we're all here. This is, I'm sure, why you're all tuned in. This is why the whole world was watching on April 1st, 1990. That's why 67,000, uh, you know, 678 people were in attendance. The World Wrestling Federation Intercontinental Champion, the Ultimate Warrior. The World Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Champion Hulk Hogan, the classic, you know, you know, immovable object versus irresistible force, whatever cliche you want to use. It was the ultimate challenge. We painted the picture for you when the show first started, 
It went through the Royal Rumble. It went through the main event. It went through Superstars. It went through Wrestling Challenge. It went through the Warrior beating up the Earthquake. It went through Hogan beating up the Earthquake. It went through the Earthquake beating up the Warrior and Hogan. It went through Perfect. It went through the Genius. It went through basically their careers being paralleled as you look back on it because you knew that the Warrior was unstoppable. You knew that Hogan was unstoppable. And you really had no idea for the first time who was going to win. Now, I'm always going to remember fondly, as I've mentioned before, WrestleMania 3. Andre undefeated for 15 years, Hogan the champion. But I still, I mean, I was too young to watch it live, but I still would have thought Hogan would have won that match because Hogan was the clear baby face and Andre was the clear heel. This was not the case. Hogan was the man, but the Warrior was the man too. Hogan was the fan favorite, but Warrior was the fan favorite too. Hogan was the champion, but Warrior was a champion too. Both men had a lot to gain. Um, The winner would walk out a double champion. The winner would walk out the undisputed champion. The winner would walk out as... If you think about WCW during those times, you know, you had Flair, you had Sting, but I think the whole world would have said that the winner of this match at WrestleMania 6 would not only walk out as the biggest star in WWE, but would also walk out as the biggest star in the world of professional wrestling. So much to get into. We can tackle this one together, Conrad. I'll let you start it off. IC champion, WWE champion, everything on the line. Talk to the people. First, I want to get to the promos. The promos leading up to this match were well done. If you have never seen uh, the destruction of Ultimate Warrior DVD, which is kind of a hit piece on him, um, Edge and Christian, I believe Edge was at this show. I don't know about Christian, but Edge definitely was. Yes, he was. And they talk about the promo, and I and I always remember this one too with Ultimate Warrior. Ultimate Warrior promos. When I go back and watch them today, it's kind of like Piper's a little bit, but worse. Um, like I just don't understand what he is talking about. He starts talking about darkness and everything else, but I'm glued to the television set because I'm like, what is this man talking about? And I'm just sitting there trying to figure if there's any reasoning to this, and you can't figure it out. But that promo where it's the Hulk, Hulk it. And he starts talking about the plane taking a nosedive. And there's no one in there to save him. And even before this match, he talked about how he didn't want all of the Hulkamaniacs to feel like once he takes Hogan down, that you can't be a Hulkamaniac anymore. He wants you to join the Warriors. And I was just like, oh, that's interesting. Interesting, like, spin the way they put it on it. Hogan still did his whole, listen, brother, I've been the World Wrestling Federation champ for all these years, and I'm going to take down the Ultimate Warrior. And he did his classic, uh, the prayers, the vitamins. And the power, the power's right here in the palm of my hand. Yes. Hogan did the classic, and he added a little bit more touch for a baby face. Now, the key word to this match to me was formula. This match had to have the right formula for this to work, and I think they really put a lot into it. And I'm going to kick it back to you before I start getting deep into what I mean by that. 
for what I thought made it work, but I want to hear some of your thoughts on this. Well, I think you're you're, you're very good in, in bringing up the promos because I'll talk a little bit more about Hogan's promo, which was a little bit more of a hint of heel. And I know you may be saying, well, that was the most babyface you know, promo. There was a small piece, and that piece was this. When he said, all that matters is what kind of winner you are or what kind of loser you are. And Ultimate Warrior, I sure hope that you're a good loser. That was a shot. That was a prediction. That was him saying, hey, listen, you need to understand that, as he called it, the darkness that you live in doesn't compare to the light that I live in. He wasn't trying to be a nice guy. Hogan wasn't trying to be uh, a friend to the Ultimate Warrior. Hogan wasn't trying to say what the Warrior was saying, which you put together nicely about how the Warrior was trying to bring the Warriors and the Hulkamaniacs together. No, no, that wasn't Hogan's thing. Hogan was trying to let the Warriors know that the Warriors need to convert to Hulkamania because if you don't convert to Hulkamania, you will be walking in the darkness of the Ultimate Warrior. So Hogan was about Hogan. Hogan was making sure that he was telling the world, hey, listen, Hulkamaniacs, we're not in a battle with a friend. We're not in a battle with, with a brother. We're in a battle with just another opponent. The Ultimate Warrior is Macho Man Randy Savage. The Ultimate Warrior is Andre the Giant. The Ultimate Warrior is Ted DiBiase. The Ultimate Warrior is King Kong Bundy. The Ultimate Warrior is an opponent. He is not our friend. This is not to be taken lightly. This guy, meaning the Ultimate Warrior, is trying to threaten Hulkamania. I loved it. I felt it told a good story. And as a fan looking back on it, it should have worried me. Because that was a small indication of what was to come. Because the Warrior wanted to be united with Hulkamania after his victory. While Hogan was looking to mow the Warrior down so the stage was set and i'll kick it back to you yeah it was it was basically a hindsight thing though you didn't know but watching that made me see a lot of foreshadowing how hogan put warrior over as the baby face kind of like yes. you said and how warrior made some of the mentions of it but like i said let's go back to my key word of this match formula we all know this was huge as a kid a lot of people told vince don't do this this is where Vince McMahon's arrogance and cockiness of today comes from. I know a lot of people wonder, well, why is Vince the way he is? Remember, they told Vince things like the New Age Outlaws. That's not going to work. They told Vince that you should not do a babyface versus babyface match. You shouldn't do a WrestleMania event. Vince McMahon got his swag from stuff like this working. Because he was like, huh, I thought it wasn't going to work, huh? And I think he likes proving people wrong. So Vince has two of his hugest stars getting ready to go at it. Huge matches, like we said in the beginning of this as kids. They go in the ring, and I'm not going to do blow by blow for this match because I can visualize it in my head. I've watched it that many times as part of, like, I don't know if you remember, USA Network used to always show, like, the top five WrestleMania oh, sure, matches. Sure. I've seen Ricky Steamboat versus the Macho Man so many times I could probably – Lay out that match the exact same way, too. Greatest match ever. Greatest match ever. It's up there. It's <laughs> definitely up there. Right. When you look at this, though, this match is something special. 
And a lot of people are probably going to say, what do you mean? These guys went in and they did what they knew they could do, and they've added more drama into this to make it work. Some of the little things. They went in there and they were doing things like test of strength. They both knew how to do that, and that was both of their kind of things. Warrior was kind of a carbon copy of Hogan even for the time. Like, you're just going to do it a little bit different than him, but you're going to do the same things he does. When they went in there, they would both do the exact same things that they do, like the test of strength, but they would both get the better of each other. So fans were both believable. Hogan fans would rise, then Warriors fans would rise. They did a good job laying out this match for crowd control. And over the years, I don't know who set this match up. Maybe it was Pat Patterson. Maybe it was someone else. Whoever did it, Vince owes you a steak dinner, at the least a steak dinner, for how you set this match up. So the drama made it work. Hogan and the getting press slammed, all the kickouts. The fans were gasping at kickouts of just a back body drop, which is something completely different for wrestling fans today. It's something I think wrestling needs to add in, is that you could lose from a basic move at any given time. Anything could happen at any moment. And when they go through this, it's like poetic memory when Hogan begins to... Um, you, you see Warrior shakes the ropes... After Hogan's trying to beat him down, no effect. But when Hogan starts to hulk up, the Toronto fans were behind him. I think that this crowd was more pro-Hogan, in my opinion, too. The Toronto, Canada always loves Hogan. I don't know what it is. That's just their guy. And when Hogan starts hulking up and he starts setting up everything and he gets Warrior down and he's calling for the leg drop, Hogan bounces off that rope. And I remember when I first watched it, my heart dropped. Because I wanted Warrior to win this match. I, I am not the biggest Hulk Hogan guy. Okay. Uh, I definitely like Macho Man and um, the Ultimate Warrior a little bit more than Hogan. And that was just because I was tired of Hogan always being on top, making the big save, ending the shows. Brother, brother, brother. When he goes for that leg drop and Warrior moves and he misses, I can still play it out perfectly. It's one of the few times you ever see the Ultimate Warrior without face paint. The face paint on his chest and on his face wore off. Because the matches never went that long. Right. And, that, and that's the beauty of this. Right. And I'm going to bring up a point towards the end of this that's going to change everything. Warrior hits the splash. One, two, three, Hogan kicks out. It looked like kind of a fluke kind of ending, too. Hogan always did that, too. When he lost the match, he always did like this kick out after, like, brother, I almost kicked out. <laughs> but everybody is shocked by this. Everything happens with it. Pause, because I'm going to wait for your thoughts on the rest of it before I get into any more of that part of it. But I do want to say this. This match had, was way better than it had any right being. Nobody would have ever thought Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior would go out there to deliver a good match. A match that I gave a grade of an A to. And I could even see some people saying A+. I could see an A-, but this match deserves to be in this A category, in my opinion. In my opinion, this is the second best Ultimate Warrior match of all time. And I'm talking big stuff right there saying that. Um, very good, very good match for Warrior and Hogan in this one. Uh, I thought they did a tremendous job. If uh, I could narrow it down to one word, your word being formula, my, my word would be majestic. Um, there, were, there were so many majestic parts to this match. And, I, and as I think about it, it almost gives me goosebumps because 
it wasn't just the fact that Hogan went for the leg drop. It's the fact that it seemed like Hogan... Everything was special about this match. Hulk, if you think about Hulk Hogan's leg drop over the years, it's pretty... You know, it's been pretty much the same. I mean, it is what it is. You can't really alter a leg drop with so much. But I swear, that attempt, because it turned out to only be an attempt because he wasn't successful, that attempt at that final leg drop, it seemed like Hogan jumped higher than he's ever jumped. It seemed like he was going to touch the roof of the Sky Dome. That's how high he jumped. I mean, Hogan's never been up that high before. It seemed like the Warrior was never any better. It seemed like every near fall was, as you mentioned, the fans gasped higher than they ever would. It was almost like this level of confusion with the fans because they would cheer for Hogan. They would cheer for Warrior. There were people with Warrior face paint cheering for Hogan. There were people with Hogan t-shirts cheering for the Warrior. Um... The ebbs and flows, the, 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 like I said, it was majestic in that Hogan showed the world why he was Hogan. The warrior showed the world why he was the warrior. And hindsight being 2020, there goes that phrase again. I think subconsciously warrior knew that this was his moment because he would never have a moment as big as this. I mean, you could argue uh, you know, him beating Savage in the career match might have been somewhere close, but Warrior knew this was his moment. Warrior knew that he better not mess this up. And he went into that match with a sense of urgency and with a sense of passion where you knew he wasn't going to fail. And Hogan, as shady of a history as he has, uh, politically, I mean, um, it's almost like Hogan though probably kicking and screaming, was going to pass the torch that night. He was going to do it the right way. He wasn't going to uh, uh, shortchange the warrior his moment. Not saying he hasn't done it in the past. I mean, if you talk to Bret Hart, you'd get a much different story, right? But the warrior, even though they had, they had history before the warrior passed away, Hogan on that night, April 1st, 1990, did right by the warrior. And did right by the wrestling world. And the Warrior did not disappoint that night. What happened afterwards? We'll talk briefly about the aftermath of WrestleMania 6 in, in a moment. But I'm going to kick it back to you for the conclusion of the match. But I will say this. The word is majestic. There was never a, a more dramatic test of strength. There was never a more dramatic crisscross. There was never more a dramatic, as you mentioned, belly to back uh, suplex. There was never a more dramatic situation where you see the referee getting knocked down, where Hogan had the Warrior pinned, and then Warrior had the had had held Hogan pinned. It just they, it was majestic. It it was one of the greatest spectacles I've ever seen. They they did a really good job with the drama being added in, and when I say formulaic, this is me looking back on it now. Sure. Because majestic is perfect for if you're looking at it at that time for how they did it. I put formulaic in here because it was so well put together by whoever set this up to make them both look strong throughout the match. They both did almost the exact same things to each other, and that was the entire match. Like, you do this, I do this. You do this, I do this. And they kind of just kept going with that back and forth, and it 
the way you were set up being larger than life, these two powers collided, and it happened at the same time. So it was really cool to see how they made that work with adding all that drama. But what you said, too, Warrior didn't wrestle long matches. Whoever put this together had great rest spots in for both of them. Hogan going to the floor and holding his knee. All of that stuff just worked beautifully for it. Like we said, the Warrior hits the splash, one, two, three. Warrior is in the ring celebrating. It's over. There's a pop from the Warrior fans. Um, Warrior gets his Intercontinental title belt. He's in the ring celebrating. Hogan goes all the way over to Howard Finkel, who is on the outside, and he kind of just takes his belt. He does it in a heelish kind of way, kind of like snatches it away like, man. And he looks at the belt, and then he looks up at Warrior. And this goes back to the words you uttered before about being a good loser. Hogan grabs the belt, and fans of today would assume, oh, man, Hogan's about to hit him with the belt. Hogan's about to do him dirty. But Hogan comes into the ring and hands the title over of a symbolism of passing the torch to the ultimate warrior to put his hands up and warrior celebrates with both belts in the sky dome the first ever international wrestlemania this is a huge huge moment for the ultimate warrior uh that word cannot be given anything greater for what that meant for the warrior to get this warrior is shaking the ropes he is the intercontinental champ the wwf champ and he gets pyro coming from the sky dome He's getting all of the pomp and circumstance, no pun intended, for the Macho Man. He is getting all of that because he is the first, like, big-time double champion. He answered the ultimate challenge, and now he's going to get the ultimate push by Vince McMahon. Now, that push, not as majestic as the title win, as we know. Um, numbers were down with Hogan as not, you know, not being champion. Um, pay-per-view buys were down. Uh... They tried. They tried to give Warrior an opportunity, and it's not like he lost the title a month later. He would hold the title all the way until the following January, so his title reign would be about nine months. Um, during that title run, he would uh, meet and defeat several people, including the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase, Dino Bravo, Haku, uh, Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning, um, several Several of the, you know, classic heel opponents, um, the Barbarian here and there. But, um, you know, the classic TV taping title defenses mixed in with a couple of Saturday Night Main events. He would win the Survivor Series with Hogan. Um, he would lose the title of Sergeant Slaughter, and, and we know what would happen from there. Hogan would get the belt back at WrestleMania 7. Uh, before we get into a little bit of Q&A, um, Conrad, just give us your, your overall assessment of the main event and your overall assessment of um, WrestleMania 6. What would you say you took away from the build-up, the event itself? How does that, how, basically, how does this event wash over you? It, it has to go in as one of, the, one of the most important pay-per-views of all time. Hmm. All right, this main event is huge, in my opinion. I think for a long time... This had to be a top 10 uh, WrestleMania match, depending on how people wanted to look at it. Uh, this match meant a lot to kids. It meant a lot to wrestling fans. It was two of the biggest baby faces colliding, and it proved a formula that would later go on to be played off of many of many of times. Uh, we saw this once again 
uh, they teased it with Bret Hart and Lex Luger because they knew this formula started to work. Then you got Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, WrestleMania 12, the Iron Man match. You could eventually start to play off of some of these things. WrestleMania 17, in my opinion, one of the greatest WrestleMania cards ever. You could look Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock as baby faces. This match is the reason for all of that. And I don't think he gets enough credit. That's how I feel for this match. I think a lot of people sleep on this, but this is really, like I said, the Ultimate Warrior's second best match that I've ever seen. If you could show me something with the Blade Runners that's better, I'd be very surprised. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised as well. Yeah, so to me, this is his second best match of all time. Overall, though, when I look at this, I wrote down one match show. Now, this is all built around this one match, and I don't think there was anything more important than that. Okay. It, it put everyone in their perspective spots, and Vince tried to keep everyone happy. But this match was all about this main event. And when I gave an overall show grade for this, I went with a C plus. This WrestleMania is not top five horrible. Like, not in the top five worst WrestleManias, in my opinion. Is it in the top ten? I don't think so either. I think it leaves something to be desired. But this was a long show. And I think this is the last stretch of them being, what was this, three hours and 45-ish minutes? Yeah, after that, it, it went for many years to the three-hour format. Yeah, thank goodness for that. Um, I think <laughs> they try to fit everybody on the card, but sometimes you're just like, dude, get the filler out of here. Like, right. Take the unnecessary stuff out. Make a big tag match or something else instead of having all these singles matches on here. So... Not a bad show overall. You get a lot of decent to okay matches, which you're going to get what you expect out of them. But this match is based on Ultimate Warrior, Hulk Hogan, the greatest clash. It was built around these two, and they told a heck of a story. And I love the fact that this WrestleMania was international. It started to show that WWF was global on all fronts, and anything could happen anywhere, anytime. And I really enjoyed this event. I don't think it gets enough credit. It's one of those sleeper WrestleManias, too. So So there you have it. I mean, WrestleMania 6, Toronto Sky Dome. I mean, it was it was truly an event of epic proportion. 67,678 uh, then uh, Toronto Sky Dome record. Uh, it would set the stage for Hogan and, and uh, an earthquake at SummerSlam. It would set the stage for a steel cage match between the new... WWE Champion Warrior versus uh, Ravishing Rick Rude. It would set the stage for Mr. Perfect's Intercontinental title run. It would set the stage for a feud between Demolition and the Hart Foundation. It was truly a, a night that was geared towards SummerSlam with the exception of the main event, as Conrad just pointed out. The entire night was built around the Ultimate Challenge. Say what you want about everything that happened the day after moving forward, okay? Warrior's title reign wasn't as good as they hoped it would be. They gave the title back to Hogan a year later, whatever. But that night, that night, Warrior delivered, Hogan delivered, and uh, I'll give the event as a whole a B. I also was very intrigued by the tag title match as well, and I thought the Dusty Rhodes mixed tag with Macho Man was really good too. But, um, you know, you mix a five-star main event, in my opinion, with maybe a C-plus show, and that's going to get me to about a B. So... Let's go to a couple of questions, if you don't mind, Conrad. I know we're running late on time, but I'll tell you, this has been really a, a really cool show, and we have a couple of questions. Ever since I announced that you'd be my guest for this special WrestleMania 6 
episode, um, I got about uh, I got a few emails at the Hubbard Wrestling Weekly uh, email address, so I wanted to share them with you. All right? Yeah. All right. So this question is from Robert from Cleveland. He says, "What would you say is the best match? Oh, this is similar to what we were just talking about. What would you say is the best match of the night of WrestleMania six besides Warrior and Hogan?" Um, for me, I'm going with the mixed tag match. Awesome. I would agree with that as well. I thought it was very well done. I thought the involvement of Elizabeth was very innovative, very different. And it was the main event of the first half. As we talked about earlier, back in the day, they used to have intermissions in the middle of the show. And that was the last match before the intermission. So, um, Keisha from Toronto, Canada. How appropriate. Um, did WWE get it right? And she's talking about Ultimate Warrior with the championship. I wanted I wanted to sing the Drake song to Keisha, but I feel like that would just be so inappropriate. She might roast me later. So just know that I thought about it though. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, was the Ultimate Warrior decision right? I mean, in hindsight, I guess there the answer would word be again. right. That there goes that word again. In hindsight, I guess the answer would be no. But I mean, we can't do it that way. We have to think about the moment in time. So I'll let you I, take it. Yes, for the moment in time, I want to say yes because. For me, it got me more behind Warrior at the time. Here's my problem with when people say stuff doesn't work right away either. If you have the biggest superstar who you promoted for years and years and years as the top guy, the next guy's never going to look as good right away. It's kind of like being the second president of the United States. Everyone holds George Washington in this high like esteem. But does anyone ever talk about John Quincy Adams? No. No, not at all. Because he had to follow the guy who was pushed as the greatest, and they wanted him to stay longer. And it's just like, well, okay, I got to live to the George standards. And that's how I feel with Warrior. He had to live to Hogan's standards instead of being himself. And I don't think that was really broken until you get to the reign of the Hitman, to be honest, where they finally said, well, Hitman's not Hulk Hogan, but we got to try to book him similar to how we booked Hogan. And I just feel really bad for it. Um, and even in hindsight, I think the company needed a change during that time. We needed to see different people in the main event. It couldn't just be the Hogan show. And I was behind it. So you know what? I'm going to say it was the right decision overall, period. Okay. Um, we got Lisa from Houston, Texas. She says, the Mega Powers explosion from WrestleMania five seemed to pretty much go away. In 1990... They revisited it with the last main event show where Hogan and Macho King faced each other for the title. But the entire world really knew that Hogan would win the match because there was no way that the ultimate challenge would be taken away. That being said, don't you think a better situation for WrestleMania 6 would have been a Macho Man Hogan Mega Power rematch? No. I, I, I disagree with that um, thought process on it. I feel that the Macho Man had his time from 88. Now, could you have booked Macho Man better during that? I would say yes. Okay. But um, 89, they had their big blow-off, cool, whatever. You have to have the time to cool down a little bit. So Macho Man's still in those main events and upper mid-card roles, but he's still in the mix with the players. That's fine. Hogan and Warriors match, like I said before, it led to so many other things. This match is more important than people think. This match, like I said, do you think, if let's say this match flops, Sean. Right. right? I'm, I'm asking you a question. Okay, sure. Would you get the Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, 
babyface versus babyface Iron Man match? Would you get Bret Hart versus Diesel when they're both babyfaces? Like, would you get those types of situations if this failed? You're you're 100% right. The answer would be no. I agree. This match, this this Hogan Warrior match was the catalyst for every face versus face main event that took place henceforth. There's no question about that. I'm with you 100%. There's no doubt that without Hogan and Warrior, that that HBK Bret Hart would have never happened, and so many others would have. Hey. Even more, Roman Reigns, John Cena would have never happened. It was truly the catalyst. It was the first time ever, and it worked. There's no doubt about that. But I do understand where she's coming from. Um, I thought the Mega Powers thing ended early. We actually talked about that uh, last time we spoke on your show. But unfortunately, sometimes these things, you know, hindsight, there it goes again. Hindsight being 2020. Uh, We can't look back and always say, oh, we should have, would have, could have. Warrior was the right man at the time. It didn't work out afterwards. But, um, you know, we, we just have to go with what we have at the time. And at Royal Rumble 1990, when they tested the waters, the fans spoke. And it didn't work out a year later, but you can't do things according to how you feel like they're going to work out a year later. You have to go with what's hot at the time. And there was nobody hotter in the business than Warrior at that particular moment. And, and can we talk about that real quick, too? I want your thoughts on this, because I always like to ask other fans the same question. Like, what would you have done to make Warrior better? Like, where did they go wrong, in your opinion, with him during his little run here? He was one-dimensional, man. He was one-dimensional. Um, You know, five moves of doom is what they told me with John Cena. But, like, the Warrior was, you know, hit the ring. You know, God rest his soul. No disrespect. But hit the ring at 100 miles an hour. Shoulder block, shoulder block, clothesline, shake the ropes. Uh, gorilla press, splash, one, two, three, you're back. You know, you're back in the ring. You're back in the locker room in in two minutes. Um, You can't do that and be successful. You can't have him beat, even though it's awesome, and I know I'm sounding like I'm double talking, but you can't have him beat the 14-month Intercontinental Champion Honky Tonk Man in 30 seconds. Because what that does is it makes everybody believe that that's all you can do. So he went out and approved at WrestleMania that that's not all he can do. He can wrestle uh, our match. But you know what that also says? It also says, okay, you know what? Hogan was probably the one who was the one running the match. He was probably the one who was orchestrating everything. Obviously, the agent, like you said, Pat Patterson, whoever it was, put the match together. But Hogan was probably the one, kind of the lead dance partner in that situation. And then, again, look, the match was awesome. Look, if Hulk Hogan Warrior was all that the Warriors' career would be defined by, then I would have no argument. But what about, you know, a month later when he faced Haku for the title on Saturday night's main event? What was the better match, Perfect and Hogan or Warrior and Haku? No doubt. It was Warrior uh, Warrior and, Ho- and, and Haku was, was the lesser of the two. Hogan stole the show. It seemed like it's been talked about many times that when Hogan left the ring at WrestleMania six, that more people were watching him ride off on the cart than watching the Warrior in the ring. Um... It was a situation where the Warrior showed the world what he could do on one night. But then he went back to status quo right afterwards. He went back to being the buzzsaw right afterwards. If you want to be multidimensional, you got to be multidimensional moving forward. The character lacked creativity. He was very, very one-dimensional. You know, um, we talked earlier about that Hogan promo at WrestleMania 6, right? Mm-hmm. 
and we showed that little tiny hint of heel. Even if it was just a pinch of heel, but it was enough to give a little bit of diversity. There's never been a diverse War Ultimate Warrior promo. It's been nothing but insanity every time he's ever spoken. There's never been one time where he's like, you know what, the Warrior made sense on that one. Because he never made sense. It never, he was a, he was a bad promo. He had great music. He had a great entrance. He had a limited moveset. He's honestly, I'll be fine. I'll be honest. He's fortunate he was champion the one time he was. That's that's my perspective. Yeah, it's just to me, he sounds like he's the first Goldberg. Well, that's a that's a great analogy. Right, but it works so much. Like no one talks about Goldberg this way. So because it, you know, why nobody talks about Goldberg? Because Goldberg was the last ditch effort. Goldberg was them trying to save a sinking ship. In '98, when when Goldberg won the title, that was the last year that WCW was profitable. WCW needed a change. WCW, it's similar to the Hogan situation, especially considering the fact that Hogan was the guy that the Warrior took it from, and the Warrior and Hogan was also the guy that Goldberg took it from. So that's very similar. But my point is. Um, Goldberg, the fans were craving for somebody to be behind because they were so tired of the Hogan's and the Nash's and, 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 and everything like that, right? But in Warrior's situation, eight years earlier, we already had a hero. Yeah, okay, maybe there was a little bit of groundswell about, okay, Hogan's always on top. Hogan's always the winner. Hogan must pose, right? But did we really get sick of Hogan? Or were we just trying to see if there was something else out there? Because we clearly weren't sick of Hogan because Hogan was back on top the following year. I think the people weren't sick of Hogan, but at that time, I remember I was one of the people experiencing Hogan fatigue. Uh -huh. um, I was one of the people happy that Hogan didn't win the 92 Rumble. Um, yeah, Just weird. Just a weird take on it, kind of, you know? Yeah, I wanted to see other people succeed. And I think that's a key part of being a wrestling fan. If your people that you are behind don't succeed, sometimes I can see how that can make you not want to be a fan as much anymore. I know people who are diehard X-Pac fans. <laughs> X-Pac. And I'm like, it's no wonder why you're left with the product. You pick people to like that never got pushed. Exactly. To that next level. I grew up as a fan. I love the tag teams we talked about before, the Rockers and Hart Foundation. Who are two of the people in there that ended up moving forward? Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. You, you have to see the talent when you're watching this. It's a sound assessment, man. I agree with you. Um, Marty, from also from Cleveland. Two shout-outs to Cleveland today. Marty from Cleveland says, It's been well documented that Ric Flair was in contract negotiations with WWE in 1988 and 1989. If Ric Flair had come, let's say, in 1989, would Warrior had ever had his moment at WrestleMania 6? Period. She continues. He continues. That's why I want to... Uh, make sure I get his whole point across. He says, clearly, the Mega Powers WrestleMania 5 match had to happen. So that would have pushed Ric Flair back to WrestleMania 6. Does Ric Flair get Warrior's spot at WrestleMania 6, or does the Warrior still have his moment in Skydome? That's an awesome question, by the way. That is a very good question. I think the cool part about the question also was the fact that he was very distinct about saying, Mega powers exploding would have happened no matter what. So now we're talking about WrestleMania 6, which coincides with the Warriors. So I think that's awesome. Shout out to, to Marty from Cleveland. That was an awesome question. These have all been good questions. Yes. Um, yes. As far as this goes, this is tough to say because this is all going to depend on how much political power 
does Ric Flair have at the time? Because remember, we were in this similar situation in 1992. Right. WrestleMania 8. Everyone thought the match was going to be Hogan versus Flair. I thought it. You thought it. Oh, My yes. dad thought it. My oh, grandma yes. thought it. <laughs> but it didn't happen that way. And still to this day, nobody really knows why. Not Bruce Prichard, not Pat Patterson. It seems like if someone knows, they don't want to talk about it. That is one they, of the great mysteries in wrestling history because it was scheduled and it was changed. We'll get into that another day. But, yeah, that's one of the great mysteries in WrestleMania history and wrestling but, history. Here's my thing. Now, I try to put things together in my own head, maybe, to how I see they happen, as you guys hear a lot on this. Mm-hmm. When I look at it, I wonder, Bruce Pritchard said maybe it was the bad house drawing that they had. They thought that they would be full sellouts, and they weren't. Whatever. I think it came down to the political game. I think Flair came in with a lot of power, promised a WWF title ring. He got it. Hogan also had his creative power. And then when it was time for who's going over at the biggest show of shows, Ric Flair knew he was a star somewhere else, too. So he said, listen, I can't lose like that because if I ever have to leave here, I'm not going to be looked at as the loser who lost to Hulk Hogan. Right. And Hogan on the flip side says, oh, brother, Vince, you mean to tell me that the guy who hasn't been loyal to you, like me, is going to beat me, brother? That's not going to work, brother. (laughs) I got this idea with the leg drop. I'm going to jump 15 feet high, man. And I'm going to... Conversations going. Right. And I don't know if it would have happened that way. But if Flair's not in that match, where do you put him on this card? Okay, so again, just to to reset the stage, because I I want you to have the full. uh, Like I said, once again, shout out to Marty from Cleveland, because the the key is this the mega powers have to explode at WrestleMania 5. Because before Flair was a possibility, the Mega Powers wheels were already in motion, right? So we have to get to five. So even if Flair's in the fold in 1989, okay, the Mega Powers have to explode. So the only thing that's on the agenda next is WrestleMania six. So we're gearing up for WrestleMania six right after WrestleMania five concludes. So if Flair's in the fold, does Rick Root ever take the title from the Intercontinental title from Warrior? Does the Warrior get the title back at SummerSlam? Does the Warrior get that moment in the ring with Hogan at the Royal Rumble? Take it, take I, it. I feel like maybe we would get Ric Flair versus Roddy Piper or something. I just don't think it would happen with their egos. Okay. I just okay. don't think, I think Vince would have said, okay, we'll go with Hogan Warrior. Warrior will go over. It's kind of like the whole um, Austin Rock thing, too. Or how... We all know at WrestleMania 18, they wanted it to be Hogan-Austin. Yes. They could not get to it because Austin, similar to probably Flair, was like, he ain't dropping no leg drop on me, brother. I'm telling you, he's eating the stunner if we do this match. Right. And Hogan's probably on the other end saying, listen, dude, you know the people in Toronto are going to love you for my match with Warrior Man. So... Here's what I'm thinking, Vince. I'm going to jump 25 feet in the air. So I thought it was 25 feet in the air. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know Hogan exaggerates. So he tells yeah, me. Yeah, I know, I know. And and I grab the knee braces, brother, and he loses to me, man. And then I'll reveal that I'm a baby face, and me and Steve can team tomorrow night, man. Right. So that way he's under my thumb. I mean, tag it with me. Tag it with me. <laughs> yeah. Right. So neither of these guys are going for that. I think if this happens, Bad News Brown may be put into another match or a dark match or something else. And you go with Ric Flair versus Roddy Piper as this big blow-off feud. Flair can get the victory over Piper, and Flair can move on 
and hopefully challenge Warrior later on for the title. That way Vince satisfies all parties. I think that was always Vince's MO, how can I satisfy everyone? Which is why he's dug himself a hole in all these years and why things like the Montreal Screwjob, etc., etc. have happened. Because he's trying to satisfy too many people. Well, my friend, I got to disagree with you. I mean, I, I got to get, look, I set the stage for you and you gave me your opinion and I'm, I, I, I'm setting the same stage for myself. There is no way. Like, WrestleMania 8, I know it's only two years later, but Hogan at WrestleMania in 92 was a not, not the same Hogan that was at WrestleMania in 1990. Hulk Hogan was on top of his game athletically, charisma-wise, everything. And politically, too. Okay? There's no way you give me a 1990 Hulk Hogan and a 1990 Ric Flair under the same roof and don't have that be the main event at WrestleMania 6. I don't care what the Warriors doing. I don't care what Macho Man's doing. I don't care what Roddy Piper's doing. I don't care what the people in the truck are doing. I don't care who the people are selling popcorn. Hogan and Flair in 1990? 19, there's never been a better Ric Flair than in 1985 to 1990, 91, 92. There's never been a better Hogan from 87 to 91. So, I mean, we're talking about Flair and Hogan in their prime. Prime. It's... I'm sorry, the Warriors going to have to take an L on this the, one. The, the only way I can see this happening is if Tully Blanchard and Aaron Anderson were still in the company and Paul Roma's joining them and Heenan's going to be J.J. Dillon and they become the four horsemen and Flair gets put over that way. Flair is not losing this match, in my opinion, especially back then. I think he knew his worth and he still had a lot of time to wrestle. So I don't think he would have wanted to lose at this point. I feel you. I feel you. Maybe it would have been the Toronto screw job because neither one of them probably would have wanted to lose. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm with you. What a great question that was. Once again, Marty from Cleveland. Shout out to Marty from Cleveland. All right, we're going to get to one more, and then we're going to call the show. Um, man, we've had a lot of fun on this show. Wow. Okay. Tasha for Oh, this is a little personal one, man. This is, this is for both of us. Tasha from Los Angeles uh, says... I hope Hubbard Wrestling Weekly and Everything Pro Wrestling have more collaborative efforts. I love the show, and I think you guys have good chemistry. Listen to the Everything Pro Wrestling show on iTunes yesterday, and I'm so happy you guys are doing more work today. Shout out to both of you. Leave me that five-star review, baby girl. Yeah, look at that. That's what's up. That's what's up. That's a fact, too. If you love us, give us some love. But that's the um, to answer that question, I think we're going to work together more. Um... This show is airing on June 7th. I just did an episode of Everything Pro Wrestling, which is Conrad's show uh, last week, um, earlier this week, actually. And there's no doubt that we're going to continue to work together, I think. Um, I'm actually trying to put the production, uh, the beginning pieces of production together. I'm actually risking you turning me down right here on the air, but I'm going to try it. I'm thinking about doing a WrestleMania 8 episode. I would love you to come back for that. Ooh, that was my first retro review. Okay, so maybe we can, you know, do something collaborative with that, possibly. Mm-hmm. But, that, um, actually, and another fun fact, that is my first ever pay-per-view I ever ordered. Oh, nice, nice, nice. So a little sentimental value there. So um, to answer you, Tasha, from Los Angeles, I would say it's very likely that we're going to be doing some more work together. But as for this particular piece of work, we are reaching pay-per-view level minutes at this point. We're at 256. Oh, my God. But you know what? All entertaining stuff. Conrad, this has been fun, man. Yes, yes. It's been a lot of fun. Yes, absolutely. By the time you guys are hearing the show, 
we would have concluded uh, NXT 25. Make sure you go to Everything Pro Wrestling on all your podcast outlets as well as YouTube or wherever else that my man Conrad uh, is uh, putting his show out. I believe it's iTunes. I believe it's anywhere you can find your podcast. Uh, he, he had me as his guest on Everything Pro Wrestling when we did a NXT 25 preview show. We talked about a lot of good things, including uh, that particular show, as well as AEW, John Moxley, the Y2J interview, and many other things. So make sure you check them out. But I'm going to give him room right now to tell all of my people listening on HubbardWrestlingWeekly.com, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, what have you, where you can find his tremendous content. Conrad, talk to the people. Uh, well, the number one place where you guys can always find me is on Twitter, at EPW Show. Uh, make sure you guys give me a follow on there. Last I checked last night, I was close to 1,700, so let's get me to that number. I think I was like seven away when I looked. Um, also, with that being said, you guys can find me, if you look on my Twitter, there's a link tree on there. The link tree has links to everything that I have right now. So you can find everything pro wrestling there. You can find my merch store. Any way to listen to the podcast, which is on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you guys listen to your podcast on, Podbean, I'm on there. You can find my personal show on there, and I also do shows for Brainbuster Radio. Now, Brainbuster Radio is a group of elite podcasters. I have my show every Saturday, and speaking of all of this, so... I started off this week recording with Mr. Hubbard here. We did NXT TakeOver 25 preview. Yes, sir. Today, just uploaded, I have the King of the Ring 1993 on Brainbuster Radio. I review the entire King of the Ring card and even talk a little bit about how this concept could help today still. So, very excellent. You'll hear some of the names that we talked about today on that show. So, very fun. And tonight I will be doing an NXT TakeOver review on my YouTube channel. All the reviews go on YouTube and everything else is usually on the podcast platforms. Once in a while I'll talk about something on YouTube. But I don't have to talk about myself anymore. This is Hubbard. This is his show. He has done a tremendous job putting me over. And I loved all the questions. I had a great time being on here. If you have not been on this show yet, you are truly, truly missing out. Guys, keep interacting with it. And, Sean, thank you so much for having me on, bro. It's, no doubt, man. It's, it was great having you on the show, just like it was great me being on your show. We're going to keep this brotherhood and the wrestling community going. It's all about being fans. It's all about being journalists who express our opinions objectively and honestly. You know what I'm saying? I think the business is going to be fine, the pro wrestling business. Uh, thankfully, the emergence of AEW was really cool with Double or Nothing. Uh, that was a really cool aspect. I think they're bringing something fresh to the game. I think AEW is going to be a huge success. I like what MLW is doing, House of Glory. I think Impact Wrestling's up in their game. Shimmer Wrestling. And WWE is going to be fine. I mean, right now they're down a little bit. But I think they'll figure it out because um, NXT is amazing. So if they can take that NXT formula and bring it to Raw and SmackDown, I definitely see WWE bouncing back. They are number one in the world still, but AEW is coming. So I hope that they uh, figure it out at WWE before AEW starts clipping at their heels. But I'm all about competition, so I'm looking forward to AEW this fall coming out with their TV show. It's going to be a great thing. So with that being said, uh, we're about to wrap this episode up, the one-year anniversary episode, this WrestleMania 6 retro review. Um, but before we do, one more bit of promotional information. 
Uh, earlier in the show, I let you guys know about Hoskrea.com. They're revolutionizing uh, web development and web platforming for your businesses. Make sure you check them out, Hoskrea.com. Also, Becky Bubbles Laundry Center in New Rochelle, New York. Make sure you go in there, uh, drop off your laundry and say Hubbard Hammerlock for that 10% discount, as well as if you call them up on their phone number that I gave you earlier in the show and have them deliver your laundry and do that delivery service. If you say Hubbard Wrestling Weekly Podcast, they'll give you a discount as well. So once again, Becky Bubbles Laundry Center in New Rochelle, New York. And also one more bit of information, Quintos Deli, located on Webster Avenue in New Rochelle. I go there every morning for my bacon, egg, and cheese, and they're far greater than just bacon, egg, and cheese. They have high-quality cuisine. They're actually more like a restaurant to me than just a deli. They are excellent. So make sure you check them out as well. They will take care of you, give you the very best when it comes to food and things of that nature. Uh, you know, high-quality food, high-quality cuisine. I definitely give them a two thumbs up for their food and their quality over there, Quintos Deli. Once again, Quintos Deli, located on Webster Avenue in New Rochelle, New York. We're so happy that you guys joined us for this one-year anniversary episode. Hubbard Wrestling Weekly is bringing you the very best in professional wrestling, both independent and mainstream, as well as boxing and mixed martial arts. Please remember once again, Hubbard Wrestling Weekly will be in the building for Bellator 222 in Madison Square Garden. I mean, it's going to be an epic night of mixed martial arts, and Hubbard Wrestling Weekly will be there to cover it all from the weigh-in all the way through the public workout and fight night on June 14th. So with that being said, for my guest, Conrad Cushman of the Everything Pro Wrestling Podcast, I am your host and founder of Hubbard Wrestling Weekly, Sean Hubbard, and this has been the one-year anniversary episode of Hubbard Wrestling Weekly Podcast. We'll talk to you next time. Peace. This has been a production of HubbardWrestlingWeekly.com home of the Hubbard Wrestling Weekly Podcast, the very best in professional wrestling, both independent and mainstream. The ideas and content of this show are the exclusive property of HubbardWrestlingWeekly.com. The opinions of its hosts and guests are theirs and theirs alone, as this show and website are not associated with any professional wrestling organization.